0: Welcome to Inspired Edinburgh, the home of powerful conversations. I'm Elliot Reeves and my guest today is Peter Sage. Peter is a serial entrepreneur, international speaker, best-selling author, philosopher and teacher. Having cultivated a large global following, you have become one of the world's most sought-after experts in human behaviour and your insights are renowned for causing profound and lasting shifts that have allowed tens of thousands of people to live with less stress and more joy. You have delivered three incredible TED Talks, have been a guest on podcasts such as Entrepreneur on Fire, The Art of Charm, Bulletproof Radio and London Reel, and have spoken on five continents, sharing the stage with the likes of Sir Richard Branson, Kofi Annan and former US President Bill Clinton. You were named as one of the greatest leaders and entrepreneurs of 2015 by Inspiring Leadership Now and you were awarded the Distinguished 2013 Brand Laureate Award from the Asia-Pacific Brands Foundation for Extraordinary Individuals. Your latest book, The Inside Track, is an inspirational guide to conquering adversity in which you reveal how people can face any problem in their life from a place of power rather than force. Peter, it's an honour and a privilege to have you here. Welcome to the show.
1: Well, Elliot, the, the <laughs> honour is clearly mine. I mean, uh, it's, it's a beautiful setting. It's great to be in Edinburgh and uh, I've really been looking forward to this, to be able to have a, a chat and see where we go. Absolutely. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, it's it's quite surreal um, and amazing to have you here. I remember when I started this, um, if you could have asked me the two people that I most wanted to have on the show, it would have been yourself and Dan Pena. So. I've just ticked you off as well. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Um, Who said dreams don't come true? Oh, well, absolutely. <laughs> so the last time I saw you in person would have been November 2015. Um, and my, how our, our paths have both radically changed
1: since then. You know, it's The uh, the river of life consistently winds. It's p- <laughs> part of the adventure.
0: Absolutely is. It absolutely is. So, I mean, going back to your, your kind of early life and your beginnings, I mean, for anyone that maybe doesn't know off you, if you can just kind of set the scene and tell us a bit about that.
1: Well, I mean, that's quite a quite a large opening statement, but uh, um, yeah, I mean, I, I say to most people, you know, the introduction sounds you know, almost you know, Hollywood and surreal to an extent. And I look and sometimes hear that. And I have to remind myself that, you know, I'm just a guy Yeah, we, we all star in the movie of our life. We all have our own path and yeah, everybody's got their own story. I'm very blessed, very humbled that you know, my path has taken some of the directions that it has, mm-hmm. and uh, the illusion there is that probably makes me you know, a, a higher-rated movie star than other people are starring in their life, and that's just not the case, mm. you know. And if we go back to the, the the beginning, you know, I'm I was born on a low-cost council estate you know, in in Leicester, you know, mm. in England, and my parents were working class. Uh, we never really had anything, you know, uh, when I was young growing up. Um, yeah, it was always instilled in me to want to work hard because that was the ethic. You have to work hard to get where you want to go. And, uh, I went through initially uh, a small time in my life in private school, which my parents worked really, really hard to try to pay the the bills for. Mm. And then we couldn't afford that anymore. And I went into the state school system and that was a relief because I was pushed very hard in the private schools, but I wasn't very academic. Okay. You know, school teaches you two things. It teaches you how to pass tests and work for somebody else. Mm. And while that model kind of was designed initially for a post-industrial revolution mindset and economy Mm -hmm. where you had to show up, you know, be on time, not question authority, not get creative, press the right buttons or people get hurt, you know, have conformity and uniformity. That doesn't work in today's world. Mm -hmm. Anybody going through that school system is... Finding themselves at a place where, you know, Jim Rohn once said, you know, formal education may help you make a living, mm-hmm. which today is questionable, mm-hmm. but informal education will help you make a fortune. And for me, mm-hmm. I got out of school at 16 as fast as I could, you know, like a rat up a drainpipe. I was I was out of there. I mm-hmm. I didn't want to validate myself through getting a piece of paper mm-hmm. signed by somebody I'd never met that essentially tested my memory on how I could regurgitate information that I saw had no basis in functional living, <laughs> yeah. All right? Spot on. Welcome yeah. to the world. Now, don't get me wrong, yeah. if you're looking specifically to learn a trade, you want to be a surgeon, then yeah, I don't want to go under the knife as somebody that read a book on surgery, right? <laughs> I want somebody that's been to medical school for four or five years and got experience. Yes. So there is a role for that. Mm-hmm. But in general, most people go through education not knowing what they want, thinking a piece of paper will give them an advantage. Uh, and luckily, uh, I never suffered the, the disadvantage of college. So yeah, for me personally, yeah, I knew I always wanted to be uh, an entrepreneur. That was it. Yeah, I wanted to be a business guy because I'm like, hang on a minute. Why go to yeah, school to learn something, to get a job, to earn money? Why, why not just cut this job thing out of the way and learn how to make money? Mm. That, isn't that a better idea? And then I came across personal growth at 17, and, and the rest is pretty much history. 30 years this year in personal growth. Incredible.
0: Yeah, yeah. So in terms of earning money, I mean, you've you've spoken about this before and the fact that you were extremely driven and it was, you know, fast cars and all that good stuff. Well, what was your initial motivation to earn money? I mean, nowadays, people would say that money gives you freedom. But back then, what was the money? Was that the validation that you were looking for? Or was it... Something else driving it?
1: Yes, certainly. As a young man, yeah, keen to prove myself to the world, uh, as everybody is. You know, mm-hmm. my business teachers uh, wouldn't uh, wouldn't allow me to study business studies. They said I wasn't good enough. Yeah, um, and for me, it was all about covering up the insecurities of you know, getting over the primary fear that, as human beings, we all have, which is the fear that we're not enough. Yeah, and that can manifest in various guises on the outer layers of the onion. Yeah, fear that we're not. Good looking enough, we're not tall enough, short enough, old enough, young enough, you know, cut out enough, smart enough, yeah, whatever it is. Ultimately, it's we're not enough, so we won't be loved.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so a lot of our external behavior is driven through avoiding insecurities or avoiding behaviors that would put us in a place where we have to face our insecurities. Mm-hmm. And for me, making money was a, uh, a behavior that would allow me to prove I was good enough. You know, when I make my first million, then I'll have made it not knowing what made it really means, Mm -hmm. ultimately it means I'll be validated in the eyes of others, right? But guess what? I made my first million and then am I validated? No, of course not. Mm. Because I'm chasing an external uh, approval, an external thing to substitute the lack of something internal. Mm. And that is a hamster wheel to nowhere. So of course, you make your first million and now I realize actually I need to make two million in case I lose the first. And then you go to five, and then you go to 10, and then, you know, I've worked with, you know, people that are worth 700 million that are miserable, no quality of life because they're lying awake at three in the morning, staring at the ceiling, wondering, you know, how they can become a billionaire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Massive difference between a life chasing success, my friend, and a life chasing fulfillment. <laughs> and unfortunately, many people get to the end of the game before they come across or internalize that realization.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: definitely. We,
0: we probably don't have time to talk about your entire career path. Um, <laughs> I, I love the way that you put it, it had all the vicissitudes that you would expect from a life of uh, high-paced entrepreneurship. <laughs> I just think that's fantastic. Um, but in, in terms of your, all of the lessons and, and all of the things that you learned from business and entrepreneurship, I mean, if you were to give advice to people based on what you, you, you learned, I mean, what would be the main core things that you would want to pass
1: on to others? The first piece of advice I would actually give is you know, be careful who you listen to mm. because a lot of people confuse advice for opinion. And it's worth making the distinction there because everybody's got an opinion. Yeah, the person sitting on the couch that weighs 20 stone mm. yeah, has got an opinion as to how Ronaldo should have kicked the last shot. <laughs> right? <laughs> so you know, listen to people that have achieved what you want to achieve yeah, if you want a uh, you know, advice from me on how to be a parent, don't ask, I don't have kids. Hmm. Yeah, I am you know, I can give you an opinion, but don't value the opinion, value advice, and learn how to be, you know, make you know, the distinction between the two. Because advice is something that is given from somebody who has first-hand experience of actually achieving what you want to achieve or walking the path that you want to walk, and is freely giving that experience to you devoid of any commercial bias, hidden agenda, personal gain, mm. whereas you know, opinion is everything else. <laughs> and so, yeah, if you want advice on entrepreneurship, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm a good guy to talk to, yeah. <laughs> you know? My, my last paycheck was when I was 16, you know? So yeah, I've, uh, I've got to be doing something in, in, uh, along that path. Mm-hmm. So uh, <laughs> I would say that the biggest piece of advice I could give people is that the entrepreneurial path, the entrepreneurial you know, uh, journey is not an external game, it is an internal game. Mm. And the biggest keystone to that internal game is understanding the ability to handle uncertainty as your best friend. If you can build that muscle, not your sales and marketing knowledge, build the ability to handle uncertainty first, Mm -hmm. you go learn external skills, Mm Yeah, serial teacher sales and marketing these days. You know, it's like <laughs> there's that there's nothing that's not available as a skill base, but an emotional muscle, a mindset muscle, mm-hmm. mental fortitude. Yeah, that is something that is you know paramount. You can learn all the sales and marketing, all of the financial you know criteria. Yeah, all of the branding, all of the you know production line. Yeah, quality control that you need for your business. Mm. But if you don't have the internal fortitude that is required to live a life where uncertainty is part of your day, where you need to have um, be willing to make tough decisions and live with that and not look back and regret, where you have to step up and willing to be unpopular for what you believe to be the long-term greater good not the short-term level of please like me, love me, approve me, validate me, don't, you know, don't be upset with me, which is mm-hmm. how most people filter their communication unconsciously. Mm-hmm. Now they become this giant adaptation machine. Well, if you don't like me this way, I'll be that way. And again, it's, it's rarely conscious, but it's rare that they do the work, or you know, any of us do the work to yeah. peel back the onion to see what's really driving our insecurities at that point. Mm-hmm. So as an entrepreneur, nail the inner game now, I've had twenty, four, five, six—I so don't even know how many businesses I've had. Yeah, and some have been dramatic failures. Some have wiped me out completely. Some have made me so close to bankruptcy. It's—it's—it's it's, it's not fair. Some have lost millions in my asset base. Yeah, some should have stayed ideas when I was drunk. You know, uh, and some have been international success stories that have changed many, many lives. Yeah. and everything in between. And, and for me, it's not the—you know—it's not the having it. It's the getting it. It's—it's it's the mm. journey. It's like go swing the bat. You know, you get hmm. to the end of this game, Elliot. And you know, are you keeping score as to, oh, I won, yay, I'm the richest man in the graveyard now. Right? Or you want to turn around at the end and if you're grateful enough to choose the words out of your mouth saying, wow, now, if that was a movie, I'd pay to see that again. <laughs> yeah? And some yeah. people, it's a horror film and they don't want to go back. Mm-hmm. For some people, it's boring because they spend their life trying to live within this tight little narrow bandwidth where they don't take any risk uh, so that they don't fall down any steps. Mm-hmm. Right, that's like staying put on the snakes and ladders game because you don't want to play.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, and that's
1: that's not what life's about. No. Not in my opinion. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I want to crash out of this game hard. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to arrive all pretty and nice and all smiling. No, I want I want to get to the end worn out, not being able to breathe anymore. You know, beaten up, the, uh, internally, externally. And say, wow, what a movie. You know, that's the game I want to play, and oh. that entails taking big risks. That yeah. entails. Bigger, bigger, or building bigger internal muscles, yeah. which requires a bigger gym, which requires lifting heavier weights, mm. and unfortunately, that's what most people want to avoid. Yes, you know we call them challenges, yeah, or problems, yeah, yeah, or you know people say, oh, I like surprises. No, you don't. You like the surprises you want. <laughs> the surprises you don't want, you call challenges and problems. Mm. Yeah, Tony Robbins taught me that. <laughs> yeah, and so yeah, you know, if you have a a situation where Yeah, you want to be an entrepreneur because you want to make more money so that you can feel good enough, question that. Mm -hmm. If you want to become an entrepreneur because you're sick of your boss being a jerk, question that Hmm. because chances are like in relationships. If you end up with somebody that you feel is a certain type of person and you ditch that person and you go find somebody else and guess what, they turn out to be like the last person. Well. There's an old saying that says, if everybody you meets is an idiot, maybe it isn't them. You know, we attract the mirrors that are required for, to show us our own disowned parts for us to work on so that we can transcend that lesson.
0: Mm-hmm. I think one of the most incredible things that you do, and one of the things I think um, has, has changed me drastically as an individual, is that you encourage other people to challenge their own beliefs. Um, and I just think that's, you know, I would personally implore people to constantly do that, constantly challenge the things that you believe. You know, I think it's just it's, it's an amazing thing.
1: hundred percent. The challenge is this. A lot of us develop our, let's call it our model of the world, which yeah, is, you yeah. know, how we relate to people, what our belief system is, our global beliefs that govern, you know, wide areas or our individual or, or uh, different beliefs, our limiting beliefs. We, we build that through our psyche, you know, coming through our early teens, especially our first seven years. See, the first seven years of development, a child's brain doesn't have access to the states of alpha and beta. Now, alpha and beta waves, which are you know, anywhere from, you know, we're talking around about eight, nine hertz and upwards, uh, are usually to do with critical thinking, concentration and uh, assessment.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, children don't have access to that for good reason because they don't have enough experience data points to make critical decisions. Mm-hmm. So what that means is that evolution puts children into a brainwave state of delta and theta which is why they sleep so much, the babies do, because they're in delta so mm-hmm. much of the time. But theta is the same state as hypnosis. And what hypnosis does, the first thing a hypnotist will do is relax you. Because what it does, it calms the brain waves down. If it can get you into theta, then it bypasses the critical, um, I guess, assessment of the prefrontal cortex. And you accept what you're being told as reality. And children growing up accept what they are told as reality until they're about seven years old. Now, where's the danger in that? Well, you know, dad's standing at the checkout. But, you know, he's took the kid along to you know, Tesco's to do the shopping because Mum's busy working, and the kid sees all the sweets that are put at eye level for the kids, mm-hmm. yeah, because Tesco's knows what they're doing, as does every <laughs> other supermarket. And it's like, Daddy, Daddy, can I have some sweets? Right? And that's the child's there, and the child's you know, five, six years old, and, and daddy's you know, busy. Daddy's got his head wrapped around trying to pay the gas bill. Daddy's trying to you know, mm-hmm. sort out what he's going to get for, for, the, for dinner tonight, because you know, the wife's working, whatever. And, daddy, I Dad can have some. No, you can't have any sweets. Or well, daddy's struggling financially and he's embarrassed. Right, daddy, please can have some sweets. And in daddy's frustration, he snaps back, not out of being unloving, but out of his own inability to process or deal with yeah, his own stresses at the time. Yeah, because yeah, he's just us grown up a bit, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, the kids, we think parents should be perfect, but mm. we don't come with an owner's manual when we're born. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, daddy snaps and says, no, you can't have any sweets, Why, you, you, you don't deserve it today. Yeah, just that, that'll keep them quiet. You know, whatever, just don't ask again. But they don't have the prefrontal cortex that, you know, if the kid was nine years old, he might think, caught dad in a bad mood. Yeah, I know, I'll ask him when he's happy. I'll ask him when he's get paid. Yeah, whatever. No, what that does, it goes straight into the unconscious and the kid grows up with a belief hmm. saying, I don't deserve fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. And spends the rest of their life exhibiting behaviors that they don't even they're not even aware of where they come from. So, our belief systems are governed and developed through many different ways, but that zero to seven yeah, there's a there's a reason why, mm-hmm. yeah. The you know, a lot of the cultures will say, Give me the child for seven years and I'll give you the man because mm-hmm. they can program them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And if you grow up with a fixed model of the world, mm-hmm. it is very likely that you will have escalating feedback from life to challenge your beliefs, Mm -hmm. yeah? And as you know, I say quite often that the first belief you really wanna question is the one you're most certain about. Hmm. And one of my mentors, uh, a gentleman I was with last week, actually, a beautiful soul, probably be a little more famous when he's gone, unfortunately, but he has a a beautiful philosophy on life, and that's Tom Campbell. And Tom says, you should really be an open-minded skeptic. And I like that, because if you're a closed-minded skeptic, you're dogmatic. Mm -hmm. And that's where we see most people in science today. Science in the material paradigm is so closed-minded that it invalidates everything that doesn't fit within the material framework, even though we now know at every level of physics, digital physics, that the material world isn't the material world. Particles aren't particles, Mm. right? And if you're still addicted to the Newtonian paradigm, it's for one reason, and this comes back to dogma. You're more committed to ignoring the consistent data that doesn't fit your hypothesis, than shifting your hypothesis to match the consistent data. Hmm. See, that's closed-minded skepticism. Mm-hmm. Now, open-mindedness without skepticism, we call being gullible. Uh, that's like, oh, okay, that sounds great. I'll adopt that. Oh well, no, no, yeah, trust but verify. Hmm. Yeah, I can't turn around to somebody and and question their Newtonian belief system unless I have some decent science to back it up. Yeah, yeah which we do. Hmm. So. Uh, Belief systems are your navigator of how you interface with reality. And it matches, governs what we could call levels of consciousness, and I'm sure we can get into that. But I'll give you an idea. If you believe that all people are out to get you, and you see a homeless guy on the street, you're going to walk past that person with raised cortisol levels, elevated heart rate, Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, looking at them in a very way, if they approach you and ask a question, you're going to be on your guard. Now, if you see yeah, homeless people as unfortunate and you walk past them, you're going to be looking at them with compassion. You're going to be open to what it is that they ask for for help and maybe try to, to give them some. Mm. Um, yeah, if you um, come at life from a place of significance, you're going to walk past them and look at them with disdain. Yeah, mm. why are you cluttering up the street? Yeah, you come in mm. from pride and mm. ego. Mm-hmm. So our model of the world is different for everyone, and it is formed through our own unique experiences, significant emotional events, uh, impositions from zero to seven that we never got to question, mm-hmm. uh, and everything else. But if we walk around saying, that's how the world is, mm-hmm. then we're going to come up and butt heads with reality on a pretty frequent basis. Yeah. yeah and I, I <laughs> gave up fighting reality a long time ago, Elliot, for the simple reason it kept winning. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, no doubt. <laughs> um, you mentioned levels of consciousness. I mean, uh, for me, the um, interview that you did with London Real when you outlined that was really quite profound. I'd never heard anything like that in the past. I mean, if you can maybe sort of touch upon that, um, yeah. Just I mean, I, I, I use the term consciousness, and I sometimes think, I sometimes wonder whether it's maybe a bit esoteric to some people. Like, what mm-hmm. does that actually mean? What is consciousness? Sure. So if you can maybe kind of go
1: into a, Bit of detail around that. No, really absolutely. Beneficial. And and you're absolutely right, because it's the 13-letter world that science <laughs> completely invalidates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Science, modern science in terms of traditional Newtonian-based science, yeah, and has essentially dismissed consciousness as a byproduct of brain function because that's the only way it can fit it into its paradigm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Whereas yeah, the brain doesn't produce consciousness any more than a television produces programs, <laughs> yeah, or a radio produces music. Right? So, yeah, but they can't entertain it because science is so preoccupied and focused on the objective, and consciousness is subjective, so never the twain shall meet. So you can't bring in consciousness into a scientific debate because it's the one word that they'll run away from and lose their funding for if they try to publish, <laughs> you know? So, uh, But it's fundamental because it is the only way you experience reality. Yeah. In think, hmm. saying that the world is objective is a subjective statement, because the only way you can prove that the world is objective is subjectively. It's the most <laughs> ludicrous paradigm that you could come up with to say the world is objective, that there's an out there, out there, which you know, Einstein said there wasn't, and mm. he was smarter than us. yeah. And uh, because the only way you can tell if the moon's not there when you're not looking at it is by going back to look at it, yeah, or it, going back to measure the fact if it was there, but you're measuring it. Yeah. Anyway, don't get me started on on <laughs> yeah the, the virtual reality hypothesis. Yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but coming back to consciousness, on one hand you're right. Science treats it as a byproduct of brain function. On the other side of the scale, you have the new age movement of esotericism and yeah, let's join hands, sing "Come by Our" and and know, yeah, go off with the fairies. Hmm. And that's why a lot of the people on this side uh, are given arguments. And, and credence to try to poo-poo that side. Mm-hmm. And the people on this side are saying, yeah, but you know, get your head out of your equations and textbook and start living. How do you scientifically validate if you love somebody? Yeah, So hmm. uh, there needs to be a, a better framework of understanding mm-hmm. and also understanding where people relate on their own personal journey yeah, through levels of consciousness. Yeah, Because Einstein said, and I like to quote the guy because again, he was definitely smarter than me. Uh, he said that, Um, You cannot solve a problem at the same level of awareness, or consciousness, Mm -hmm. that created the problem. Mm -hmm. Now that sounds pretty smart, but nobody really knows what it means. So let's see if we can delineate that a little bit. Now, I am a huge fan of the late, great David Hawkins. As you know, Power versus Force is Mm. one of my favorite books because it offers a framework. I, I, I recreate the map of consciousness that David uses in the inside track Mm -hmm. uh, as a way to really help people navigate at an advanced level of awareness when it comes to consciousness. But for the average layman, again, I'm I'm not very smart myself, so I like to keep things simple. The average layman, I chunk it into four levels. And this makes it easy to understand not only ourselves, but the people that we meet on a day-to-day basis. Mm -hmm. And the first level that a lot of people operate, especially in today's world, unfortunately, is the level of what I call to me. And to me, has a mantra that gives it its name. And that is, I would have the life that I want, I would have the success that I want, I would have the job that I want, I would have the you know, the partner that I want, but everything happens to me. Mm-hmm. It is the quintessential victim story. Mm-hmm. And there are so many people trapped in victim. Mm-hmm. And there's many reasons for that. Yeah, you know, A lot of people have a story that validates victim and therefore they get secondary gain from telling that story. They get connection from other victims. You know, there's the old adage, "Your know, misery loves company." You know, I disagree. I think misery loves miserable company. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, yeah, to me is a is a really poor, low quality place. It's basically standing on the sidelines of life, not wanting to play the game, hoping you're still going to win. Well, that doesn't work. Yeah, yeah life doesn't set up that way. Oh, I I want to be the person that scores the hat trick. We'll get on the pitch. No, the ball has to come to me, bounce off my foot, and go into the goal. Sorry, that's Disneyland thinking. Mm-hmm. It's never gonna work, All right? It makes you feel safe and unhappy and unfulfilled. And usually attracting more stuff into your life that'll validate the fact you're a victim. So mm-hmm. to Me is a very you know, poor place to hang out on the journey of life. And a lot of people usually get sick and tired of being sick and tired in to Me and elevate themselves to the next level. And the next level is what I call Buy Me. By me has purpose, by me has energy, by me has you know sort of get it done energy around it because you realize finally that if you are gonna go score a goal, if you are gonna you know, win the Academy Award of your life, if you are gonna go get the job that you want, it's gonna happen by me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this hanging on the sidelines deal ain't working. So, you know, I'm gonna lace up my boots, I'm gonna get on the pitch, and I'm gonna go kick the ball in the damn goal, All right? And you go from being a victim mode to an achiever mode. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of personal growth, personal development books that are out there, seminars you go to, the motivational whole deal, is essentially chunked into getting people from the journey of to me into the journey of by me and keeping them there. And that's you know that's really where you know people like Tony Robbins, people like you know uh, you know sort of Zig Ziglar, mm-hmm. you know the Gary V's of the world. It's like get off your ass, make a plan, get out there, swing the bat, go mm-hmm. get them, cowboy. Mm-hmm. That's by me. <laughs> now the challenge with by me <laughs> is that it's pretty damn exhausting. It constantly seems like life's fighting back. It's like, okay, so you know, I really want to try and push this branch back, but the second I take my foot off the gas and let go, poof, it slams me back in the face. Yeah. yeah, and now you're starting to battle with life. In other words, you're standing on the edge of the current, yeah? you know you really got to get in the river to go after your goal, and, you know, the too me people are standing on the side of the river complaining at the temperature. They don't want to jump in. It's not quite right. Yeah. Mm. Hopefully the goal will flow over to us. Doesn't work. Yeah. I'm sick of that. Let's get into by me. Let's dive in the river and go swim after our goal. But it feels like you're swimming upstream. You're battling against everything to try to carve your way out you know, in, in the game. You're trying to, you know, literally force your way upstream to get to your goal. Mm. And it's exhausting. It's a life I lived for many, many years. Yeah, in my twenties, you know, I was working 130, 133 hours a week, some weeks. Jeez. Yeah, yeah, falling asleep at traffic lights, yeah, yawning for a living, battling with life, all from a place of fear-based insecurities. Not that I'd ever tell myself that, because my ego wouldn't allow me to hear it. But there is another level, and the next level of consciousness is what I call through me. And through me is a very different animal to by me. Yeah. And through me is where you start attracting what it is that you want without chasing it. You Things start showing up in your life far more effortlessly. It's as if you know, the universe is now conspiring in your favor rather than trying to slam the door in your face. And, okay, you've got an ax and you've got boots and you can kick that door down if you have to, and a lot of people in me that's what they're left with. But it's far better to pick a door that opens for you. Hmm. And so through me is where life flows. Instead of making 50 sales calls to try to get the person, uh, to get the the monthly quota, Mm. you just happen to meet somebody in a lineup in Starbucks and you get chatting and they become a customer worth 50 people. How does that happen? And it's always happened for people, but it happens intermittently. No one's got a framework for how to make it happen consistently. Mm. Now there's also another level of um, uh, consciousness and it's of quite a rare level and that's the level of what I call asmi And as me is where the, a lot of the spiritual masters arrived at and taught from. And it was really a case of showing you that, you know, I see myself in you, I see myself in the floor, I see myself in everything. It's it's a it's crossing the line of duality into non-duality, where the the spiritual term of favor these days is called oneness. You know, mm. you merge with the quantum field, you have this enlightened. Um, experience where you feel as if you're part of everything, the fabric of, of life itself. And you know, mm. it's rare, it's transcendental for you know mm-hmm. for, for most people. Um, it's where people like Joe Dispenza right now, Joe, Joe teaches mm. people essentially his sweet spot is how to get from through me to, to as me. You know, how to connect at that level of, and melt into the darkness of, of the quantum mm-hmm. field and, and become one. Yeah, Tom Campbell teaches how to connect with point consciousness. Yeah, Tony and, and Gary and all those guys teach a lot of people how to get from buy me to sorry, how to me to buy me, yeah, yeah. victim to achiever. Yes. My sweet spot is I teach people how to get from buy me to through me, because hmm. that's a far less you know, effortful way of living life. Yeah. And and how do you transcend these levels? You mm. know, well, I'll, I'll give you a quick guide. Yeah. What do you got to give up? What do you got to replace it with? Mm-hmm. Well, to get from buy me, yeah, sorry, to get from to me the victim mentality to buy me, mm-hmm. the achiever mentality, one has to first give up blame. Mm. Blame is the mantra, it's the anthem of the victim mentality. Yeah, it's not my fault. Well, I'm sorry, blame doesn't work in any factor of life. Hmm. I don't care if you're sitting at the traffic lights and somebody hits you from behind. If your default mechanism is to blame them, yeah, blame your luck, blame everything else, and not take personal responsibility, which is the gateway through to buy me, then mm. you need to you have got some work to do. Yeah. Now I'll, I'll I'll say right up front, these levels aren't better or worse. They're part of a pathway of individual journey. Yeah, just because mm. somebody's up by me shouldn't look down with disdain on somebody at To Me.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, for the grace of God go I. Hmm.
2: You
1: know, what's better? A five year old or a ten year old? <laughs> what's better, an acorn or a sapling? Mm. Neither. Mm-hmm. One is just more uh, expressing more of its potential along its own personal journey of growth. So if you try to use spiritual ego to say, oh, my level of consciousness is better than your level, you, you, you're at a lower level than whoever you're talking about. right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, remember the humility around that. Yeah. But to get from you know, victim to achiever, give up blame, replace it with personal responsibility. That's the gateway. Everything unfolds from there. Now if you want to go from the the sort of achiever, go get them cowboy, swim upstream, you know, carve your name in the world, into where life starts to flow through you far more effortlessly. And again, the universe starts to seem to be conspiring in your favor, and things just happen. Yeah, what have you got to give up? The first thing you've got to give up is the need for control. Mm. And that's a scary thought for anyone that's not built the muscle of how to handle uncertainty, yeah. <laughs> you know? And notice I, I said give up the need for control, not control itself. Yes. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. We try to control so much in the outer world that is beyond our control. That's that's the dance of by me. That's like, you know, how do I go and nail everything down so that, you know, don't breathe, everything's fine. Oh crap, something happened. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's that, that's by me and it's exhausting to, to maintain. Mm-hmm. And you know, by me is like, there's the straight line to my goal. And I know how to get there. It's there, there it is. So I'm going to sail down this river and I'm gonna turn it into a canal. So as soon as the river bends, I'm gonna get a shovel, I'm gonna dig a channel through, and I'm gonna to head towards my goal no matter what. Hmm. Through me is giving up the need for control and replacing it with a level of trust in the wisdom of the current. So it's like, hang on a minute, I'm doing everything that I should as a as a, you know, a competent sailor in the river of life heading towards my goal, but guess what? The river's just done a, a, you know, a, a right turn here, hmm. and I'm gonna sail as best I can with the bend because it usually brings me straight back around to where I wanna go. Mm-hmm. But if you then start digging a channel or swimming, turning back around and trying to fight the current, swimming back to where you want, that's a lifetime of stress and unfulfillment. And so giving up the need for control, replacing it with trust, faith, knowing in something smarter than us, the kind of intelligence that means I don't have to set my iPhone alarm at 4 a.m. to remind myself to beat my heart, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm and allowing life to come to you and flow to you. It's not apathy. Apathy's back in victim mode. is yeah. I don't care, wherever the river takes me, it takes me. That's, no, that, that's not f- through me. Through me is becoming a skillful sailor with intent down the river of life, but not resisting the bends, learning how to flow with them. Not blaming the bends in the river, not trying to change the bends in the river, mm-hmm. but learning how to elegantly sail and navigate what shows up, rather than resist what is. Mm. Yeah? And then to get to Asmi, what do you got to give up? Well, the illusion of separateness. Hmm. We now know everything is connected at an energetic level. Hmm. Quantum non-locality will demonstrate that. Hmm. Something that Einstein hypothesized but couldn't validate until after his death until they actually invented the equipment to now prove it. And you can entangle yeah, two pairs of electrons or two atoms and separate them by distances unlimited and have them communicate instantaneously faster than the speed of light.
2: Hmm.
1: Now, the material paradigm, that shouldn't work, so we ignore it. That's because the material paradigm isn't it. <laughs> you know, we live in a, a world where consciousness is information-based. Material reality is information-based. So, you know, there is no difference between communicating with two pixels on either side of a computer screen uh, when you have a central server. <laughs> mm. but if you're playing a game on the computer screen that requires the material game that requires a character to walk from A to B then the rule set governs that the character has to go through space and time in order to get to there and the governing limiter on that within the physical world is the speed of light 186282.4 miles a second is the governing limit to crossing the boundary into the non-physical but let's not get too far ahead of ourselves on yeah. I mean, that. Back, back to the model, you know? So yeah, to me, by me, through me, as me. It's brilliant, yeah. Where are you on that scale, and where are you in the different stages of your life? You could yeah. be in by me in, in you know, your business, and being in charge and kicking ass, and to me in your relationship, because you've got apathy and there's no love, and you haven't got the courage to be able to step out of it, or say sorry, or mend something that needs mending. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, we can have states of consciousness, Mm-hmm. which are temporary, mm-hmm. and we can have stages of consciousness, which is where we, we hang out. You know, where mm-hmm. do you live? Where do you visit? Yes. Yeah, so yeah, understanding that as a framework tends to give it a little bit more structure with how we can help navigate our life Yeah. moving forward. And if it doesn't give practical benefit, then it's just a textbook, and you know, there's no point wasting your time watching a podcast. <laughs> yeah. You know, so yeah, learning how to have practical benefit for that is really why I created the model. Yeah. but. It, 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 I would imagine it takes a certain level of
0: self-awareness of understanding or understanding of oneself to know where you're at.
1: Self-honesty and, you know, go to the Adelphi temple. Yeah, know thyself. Mm. Yeah, the two words that encapsulate pretty much the entire journey of personal growth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so mm. it's, it's, you know, Buddha wasn't born enlightened. Yeah. You know, we're all on our own journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm grateful to have had the journey I've had, but how much further have I got to go? A tonne. <laughs> you know, the day I, I'm i not blown away by how you know, naive I was yesterday is the day I'm standing still. Yeah, so you know, being open to that level of growth.
2: Yeah. And it's not a race. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, we're, we're just here to try to put one foot in front of the other the best way we can. Hmm. Try to make better decisions each day. Not beat ourselves up for a decision we made three weeks ago we can't change. Mm-hmm. You know, which many people spend their lives doing, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's really about that self-awareness is the journey of looking in the mirror. Yeah. And so many people are scared you know, to death of self-honesty. Even if we admit our flaws to ourselves, mm. we think maybe somebody else heard it. Yeah, <laughs> and so we cover up this big, you know, void of insecurity with you know consumerism, with distraction, with you know, drugs, with alcohol, with numbing whatever pain we have that we've never really looked at and therefore don't acknowledge. Mm. Makes sense?
0: Yeah. It does, totally. I, I don't think I've ever heard you speak about this, so I am interested, I mean, what was your personal journey into things like spirituality and metaphysics and a lot of, a lot of the things that you speak about aren't things that you would typically find with business and entrepreneurship. Hmm. <laughs> so how did you
1: get, what was the path? It was really. I mentioned I got into started my first business at seventeen, and I got into personal growth at the same time. Mm-hmm. And all of what I was learning in personal growth was being channeled into trying to become more successful, earn more money. Yeah. And yeah, great. You know, I was, I was buying Ferraris for cash at twenty-five, and I was <laughs> flying Concorde, and I was doing all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Massively unhappy, massively unfulfilled, completely stressed out of my mind, mm-hmm. and wondering where the end of the yeah, that the game was where I'd magically suddenly be happy because now I had enough, right? And that doesn't work because, mm, you've, you've heard my, my white rabbit philosophy, You know, most people are chasing the, the rabbit of success by running on the track of achievement, mm-hmm. and the two don't mix.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so if you um, can imagine you know, most of my early days were people's perception of me was, oh, here's Wonder Kid that's doing great, and you know, he's got all his stuff together, mm-hmm and far from it i was more of a wreck than most people that were working 9 to 5 in a factory and had you know a, a sense of being able to sleep at night mm. so as my journey of personal growth unfolded, I started to make the distinction, and again, Tony was a a big help in this, and I've had the privilege and and benefit of working with Tony around the world for probably 15 years as as a trainer at at the events, Mm -hmm. and I owe Tony a lot in terms of a lot of my model and and philosophy, as I do several of my mentors, Mm -hmm. uh, some of which you know, uh, some of which have sat in these seats, I believe. (laughs) And uh, the shift that made the biggest shift was the time that I stopped having my highest driving needs as significance, trying to prove it all yeah. about me, look at me, uh, and you know, certainty is most people's second one. Certainty I never had a problem with. For me it was more variety. But you know, certainly significance was my highest driving need. Mm-hmm. And when I switched that to growth and contribution, mm-hmm. because everything in nature grows and contributes or it's taken out of the game. Nature you know, doesn't have an ego. Hmm. Yeah. So if you look at nature to so the lessons we can learn on what the purpose of evolution is, to grow and contribute, to evolve, to evolve into higher levels of complexity, which requires higher levels of cooperation, which is ultimately love, if you extrapolate it out, yeah. then what's our purpose? My purpose isn't to grow up to be the biggest you know, guy at the top of the mountain so people can look at me. Yeah. You know, the true definition of leadership from my perspective is how many leaders can you develop not how many followers can you attract? Yeah, one's significance and yeah, internally referenced, and one is connected to how can you serve the greater good. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, for me, I got into the spirituality by realizing that the tunnel of achievement can, yeah, and success contain no cheese at the end of it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, and uh. there's got to be a better way. Yeah. Twenty-six years old. Yeah. Goal setting. Yeah. I, I, I know how to achieve goals. I set a goal, I can achieve a goal, no problem. The question that started burning, why am I achieving it? Why am I still not happy having achieved all the other goals? And I started looking for more. And that's when I, I, again, I really went on the path of understanding that what really brings the joy in life is invisible, (laughs) not visible. Yeah, the cars, the houses, the, you know, the watches, the girls, the, you know, all of that stuff, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, by the very definition of going after it, we're going after it to try to elicit an internal feeling. And coming from a place of having got all what I thought would make me happy and not being happy, uh, I started realizing what I really want was, was joy and happiness, or well, what I really want was fulfillment. Yeah. See, happiness is actually quite easy to have I'll give people the key to happiness in a heartbeat. Hmm. Happiness is a series of emotions that are the byproduct of thinking happy thoughts. Case closed. Mm -hmm. Two men sat behind prison bars, one saw mud, the other saw stars. Hmm. Your condition is irrelevant. Your environment doesn't define you. It simply gives you an opportunity to define yourself. And depending on how your model of the world is created will define whether or depend on whether you give yourself permission to be happy or not, mm-hmm. or to think happy thoughts or not. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you wanna sum up personal growth in three words, yeah, I could probably do it. And this is 30 years of, yeah, looking around and trying everything. Hmm. You want the secret to, to a life of fulfillment? I'll sum it up in three words. Feel great now. Now, what do most people play? Yeah, you know, they play the game of feel great when yeah. I get the car the promotion, the million dollars in the bank, out of debt, the right person, great sex, whatever it may be. Mm. I'll feel great when. And what they're actually saying, if you break down the language pattern and delve a little deeper is, I will give myself permission to feel a feeling that I could feel now if I chose to, but I'll only give myself permission to feel it when external circumstances fit the pictures of what I've set the game up to, being here as mm-hmm. to allow me to feel that feeling. I mm. mean when you phrase it that way, it's kind of silly. Now, if you learn how to feel great now, then go chase the car. Yeah. The promotion, the girls, the whatever.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And do it from a place of joy. Mm. Do it from a place of like, wow, what a game we're playing here. What an incredible time in history to be alive. You know, wow, look, you know, let's let's go swing the bat. Let's get on the pitch. I get to kick the ball. Yeah. Not like I'll only be happy when I score a goal. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> One thing that I don't hear you often talk about in interviews actually, and I, I'd quite like to get into this with you, it's something that fascinates me. It's my favourite v- video of yours on YouTube and it's called Peter Sage, the media. <laughs> 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 and uh, it's it's a sort of a 15 minute video. When I first watched it I was just like, wow. Because it, I think it, it in some ways reinforced opinions and views that I already had, but I never heard someone lay it out quite like you did. I mean, what are your your general views on the mainstream media?
1: Yeah, I've I've got to keep the the language, yeah, sort of, um, yeah, family friendly. Well, I mean, for a start, as you know, I haven't seen a news report, you know, I haven't read a newspaper, I haven't watched, you know, BBC or CNN or anything like that, which stands for constant negative news, (laughs) yeah, for probably close to 20 years now. I've got absolutely no clue what's going on in the world, mm-hmm. according to the media. Mm-hmm. I've got every clue what's going on in my world, and I'm happy with that. And I have a belief that says if something's important out there that affects me, it'll find me. But the last thing you'll ever see me do is read a newspaper or turn on a news report In find, I have such an aversion to it, if I walk into a gym and they're playing like news as most gyms do, I'll either walk up and turn off the television or I'll walk out of the gym. <laughs> Right? I won't get unconsciously programmed. And people may think that's a bit extreme until they understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. Now for a start, let's put it on the table. If you think that what's going on in the world is a reflection of what the media shows you, you're in Disneyland, hmm. right? No. Yeah, I'll give you a, an analogy. Go to the Amazon rainforest at night. What's going on in the Amazon rainforest? You've got a flashlight, and you can point at something in the Amazon. What's going on? Well, everything's going on in the Amazon, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Where do you want to choose to point your flashlight? Oh my god, here's a snake eating a rat, or well, here's a hummingbird being born. Hmm. Everything's going on, mm-hmm. but you have a very small selective yeah, sliver of light yeah. calls your conscious awareness that you can choose to point. Now, if you don't consciously choose, i got news for you. There are billion-dollar industries that are quite happy to switch on your torch and point it to where they want it to go, and it doesn't have your best interests at heart as an agenda. Mm. Right? So the purpose of the news, the purpose of the media, the business model of the media, bear in mind, mm. the media isn't a charity. Yeah. Right. They don't survive with the altruistic purpose of informing you of what's going on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, let's wash that one away. It's a business model. What does business require to survive? Profit, how do they get their profit? Through Mm -hmm. advertising, what do you need to justify advertising rates? Viewership, how do you get viewership? By hooking more people in. Mm -hmm. So the fundamental basis of the business model is not to report the news, it is to stimulate a part of the brain called the amygdala, which evolved many thousands of years ago with a very unique evolutionary purpose, which is to notice things that could be threatening or negative before positive, let's put it that way. So if you walk down a path 10,000 years ago and you walk past an apple tree and you miss an apple, no big deal. But if you walk down a path and you miss a snake, could be a big deal. Mm. So the amygdala is constantly scanning. We get billions of, of bits of information that come through our consciousness every second, through, mainly through the visual sense. You know, mm-hmm. 80% of the sensory processing power of the brain is given over to the visual cortex.
2: Mm.
1: Now, so we're constantly scanning, and there's so much information that if we try to process that through our f- prefrontal cortex, we just go insane and our head would explode, most likely. Right? You wouldn't be able to function. Yeah. So we have something called the amygdala, now the amygdala stands guard at the front of the conscious awareness. And imagine this rug here, for example, and it stands there and 99.9% of all incoming information is lifted up the carpet and swept under the carpet of our conscious awareness. Hmm. And anything that is relevant to our situation or our survival is actually put atop uh, of the carpet and comes into our conscious awareness. Does that make mm. sense? Yes. Now you have two aspects working in tandem. You have the reticular activating system, Mm -hmm. and the reticular activating system is designed to notice what's important or relevant. So for example, you just buy a new black BMW, you know, you've heard the analogy, you now see the black BMW everywhere. Well, it was already there, but because it wasn't relevant, the amygdala was sweeping it under the carpet, you never noticed it. (laughs) You drive to work and your daughter that morning says, Daddy, I want a bicycle for my birthday and you notice a bike shop on your way to work. Now you've driven that route for the last five years, never known a bike shop there. But today, you notice it because you always did notice it as part of the onslaught of information, but the amygdala swept it under the carpet. Now it's relevant, it brings it above the carpet, I notice a bike shop, never knew that was there before, but it's relevant. Yeah, you're in a party, and there's 50 people in the room, and you're all talking, and somebody 20 feet away mentions your name, and you're deep in conversation, oh, Sorry, sorry somebody, I had somebody mention my name. Hmm. Because it was relevant, mm-hmm. it came above the carpet. Mm-hmm. That's the reticular activating system. Now, the amygdala has a very interesting role in that process. It is VIP security. The amygdala's job is to essentially look for things that could be threatening to our survival. And it marches it straight to the front of the line, over the top of the carpet, and into our conscious awareness. Mm. That's why you can be, you know, absent-mindedly driving, but you always notice the brake lights in front of you. Mm. Mm. Sometimes yeah. a little late, but you know, yeah. the amygdala's doing its job. It'll bring it way over the whoa, well, no, sorry, we get a frontline pass. <laughs> now, newspapers and media not only aware of this, they build their business model over it, they design their stories, their copywriting, their headlines with that fact in mind. Mm-hmm. Their job out of all of the millions of pieces of data that is coming in, is to march it over the top of the carpet, courtesy of the amygdala, mm? and get your attention. Mm-hmm. And you don't do that through nice things, because the amygdala doesn't care about the apple on the tree, it cares about the snake on the tree.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm? Mm. So the job of the media is not to inform you what's going on, everything's going on. Yeah. Right? A far better question would be, what do you want to focus on? Mm-hmm. Because the, the, the mind is like a compass needle, Elliot. It can only point in one direction at a time. Mm-hmm. You cannot hold the direction of anger and the direction of gratitude at the same time. Those two states do not live in the same room. Impossible. They cannot mm-hmm. coexist. Mm-hmm. Now, you can multitask by moving the compass needle rapidly in different directions, but you cannot simultaneously think of two thoughts at the same time. Yeah. So. Here's why you should avoid the media and here's why surrounding yourself with inspirational people and peer groups is so important. Especially to undo some of that zero to seven years old programming. Hmm. And that is that when we are thinking with our conscious mind, when we can choose what we want to do, how we want to think, that represents about 5% of our waking life. You don't consciously choose which gear to select when you're driving down the freeway. Mm That's all done out of habit. And that's beautiful, it's part of evolution, and thankfully it exists as a mechanism because it means we don't have to learn to walk every day. We do something consistently, it gets handed over to you know, the rear part, the limbic part of the brain, and we can do it automatically without it having to take up the valuable space that the prefrontal cortex and the neocortex does, you know, and the prefrontal lobes, so that, you know, which is used for critical based analysis and thinking. Yeah, You can sit there and make a decision, and you're making the decision with this part of the brain. But if you you don't have to decide which leg to put in front of the other when you're walking, so it's handed to the back to free up that you know, that um, that space.
2: Mm. Yeah, makes mm. sense.
1: Yeah. So if your compass needle can be you know, five percent of the time, you can take your compass needle and you can literally grab it and drag it to point wherever you want. I'm going to focus on gratitude right now. I'm going to think of a thing you know something on my gratitude list or I'm gonna pull my compass needle over here because everybody's freaking out and we need to figure out what to do. That's the 5% power that you have. Hmm. But what happens when you take the magnet away from holding it here Mm -hmm. of your conscious mind and it goes to the unconscious? What does the needle do? It will immediately start to gravitate back to its default magnetic north. Now, where's its default magnetic north? Where it's been consistently programmed. Mm. Yeah, how do you magnetize a needle? Go back to school, right? You get a needle, you get a magnet, and you constantly stroke it in one direction, time and time again, right, to point in that direction. Well, here's what the media does. The media grabs your compass needle, points it towards the negative, and consistently strokes it in that direction. And you may say, well, I can consciously choose what to look at in the media and what to focus on. Yes, you can, 5% of the time. But when you're lying Mm. in bed at night, guess what dreams you're gonna be having? (laughs) See, and here's a great one for parents. Little yeah, Catherine walks out of the kitchen holding her bowl of cereal. And mummy turns around, yeah, five-year-old Catherine says, hey, don't drop that plate. What does Catherine do? She dropped the plate. <laughs> <laughs> Most parents are familiar with that scenario, right? Mm-hmm. Now, why did that happen? And why does it happen more consistently than her not dropping the plate? Simple. The brain doesn't process negation. Animals have no conceptual understanding of the number zero. And certainly not minus, right? (laughs) Uh, For many years, if you look at the history of mathematics, for many years, zero didn't exist. It was a revolution in mathematics when zero was actually created. (laughs) Mm? (laughs) So when uh, you understand the brain doesn't process negation, what the brain hears, and many different languages will actually phrase it this way in its linguistic structure, Mm -hmm. will say... Drop the plate, don't. Hmm. And in order to understand and process that, because we think in images, not words, mm-hmm. yeah, we think w- with words with our intellect, but we process meaning with you know visually. Mm-hmm. Yeah? If I say elephant, you don't see a picture of the word elephant. <laughs> no. Yeah. You see a big animal with a trunk. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, you'd be a strange person if you lived your life processing things in words. Mm-hmm. Now, you can verbalize and intellectualize and you know, hypothesize in words, but when it comes to interpretation, meaning, and conceptual understanding, we are visual creatures. And I heard Jordan Peterson talk about, you know, he thinks mainly in words. Well, he's an intellectual, so he lives a lot of his time in this I'd love to be on a podcast with Jordan. He's an amazing guy, and mm-hmm. his articulation is stunning when it comes to understanding behaviors. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I still assess that, you know, The real aspect of interpretation and interfacing with life is done visually because that's how we're created, that's how we're wired. Verbalization is a learned construct.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. So uh, if you um, think in words, then, sorry, think in pictures, and you you are having that compass needle. Yeah, being stroked in in one direction, mm. yeah, you are going to be processing negatively, and therefore the the bowl, the picture that you get yeah, of the bowl, don't drop the bowl, yeah, drop the bowl, don't. Yeah, localizes in the tremor because you've just been told by you know an authority figure not to do it. There's a fear there, and off you go. Mm. Now, here's the key. This is where it ties back in, and we come full circle with why, in my opinion, mm-hmm. you should avoid, run away from, never look over your shoulder at, yeah, and generally get the hell out of town when it comes to sharing life with the media. Yeah. Right? And I may not be winning many friends with this because most people go to the media for their certainty, yeah. not realizing that it was the media that induced most of their uncertainty. Hmm. Right? <laughs> so if you ask the question, why did the child's mother turn around notice the child holding the plate and immediately go to say, don't drop the bowl, instead of immediately, unconsciously going to say, hold the bowl more tightly.
2: Yeah. Because
1: if they'd have said, hold the bowl more tightly, little Catherine wouldn't have dropped the bowl. Hmm. Or would have been far less likely to do so. Mm-hmm. The reason that unconsciously, that 95% of the time where we react out of yeah, non-critical thinking, impulse, will show you where your compass needle points. And for many people that are exposed to the media on a regular basis, i got news for you. You are being programmed purposefully, commercially driven agenda mm-hmm. of, you are not gonna be a positive person because that doesn't walk the amygdala over the top of the carpet, right? <laughs> so, you know, don't drop the bowl, that language pattern was volunteered you know, involuntary, yeah. should we say, yeah. because of the default compass point was negative now. Yeah. That doesn't just affect how you language with your kids. That affects how you speak to yourself. Mm. Oh, I don't know if I can do that. Um, mm. As Henry Ford said, the great quote, whether you think you can, whether you think you can't, you're right. What isn't quoted very often is what followed that, because the evidence will show you. Mm. And so, he's absolutely right. Mm. Mm-hmm. Don't drop the plate. <laughs> yeah, smash. Yeah. So yes, the media is a uh, has become this. How do I put it again? Massive negative programming machine. Yeah. And you want to talk about the power of words? I mean, again, I don't watch the media, but you you hear the whole Brexit theme yeah, yeah. that's on, and mm-hmm. doesn't affect me. Doesn't live in my world. Yeah, I've, yeah, I, I will adapt to whatever comes into the scenes of the movie of my life, but I don't get caught up in everybody else's movie, right? Because I'm too busy filming my own. Mm-hmm. And that's not an egocentric thing. That's just, you know, why I'm here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and most people would do far better to be the star of their own movie than a film extra in somebody else's. Mm-hmm. But take Brexit as a classic example right, of unconscious programming. When we go to the doctor... And I wouldn't advocate going to doctors very often because most people go to the doctors because they want to be well. And most doctors who have huge hearts and are really trying to to help and serve and got into the profession because a lot of them really wanted to help Mm -hmm. are not trained in health. They've never been trained in health. They've been trained in illness. They're experts on illness you want to be ill go talk to a doctor they know all about it if you want to be healthy don't talk to a doctor because they've never studied it you know, it kind of makes sense to me yeah right and if you look at the figures their mortality rate is usually lower than most people that are not doctors right do the stats <laughs> uh, and again that's not being you know, sort of disrespectful to doctors no, not at all. Yeah. they are by law they can pretty much prescribe drugs and recommend surgery in anything outside of that context they usually get put in jail for mm-hmm. you know or filed a negligence lawsuit against but if you were to go to a doctor after that and a doctor could prescribe Let's say you go for depression, and don't get me started on that, Mm. but you go for depression, and he can prescribe one of three different medications, all of which do the same thing. You know, they have different levels of inhibitors and increase serotonin and all the rest of it. But one of the three brands that he could, through the illusion of free will, could pick, happens to be on his mug, happens to be on his post-it notes, and happens to be on the pen that he's writing his prescriptions with, and he thinks he's got a free will choice to make one of those three decisions, hmm. statistics will show time and again that he is two-thirds more likely to prescribe the one that he's being unconsciously programmed with through the, yeah, uh, the information that is in front of him, hmm. rather than the other two, even though they do the same thing. Now, let's go back to Brexit. What does the word Brexit stand for? British exit. Now when the vote was cast, it was exceptionally tight, something like 51-49, correct? Mm-hmm. And I assert, and you only have to talk to most people, and this is a couple of years ago now, I would say two thirds of most people didn't even understand the argument. <laughs> not at the actual levels of pros and cons. yeah Not at an in-depth level, no. 10% probably did on this side and were, keen to stay, and 10% on that side probably, you know, did and were keen to leave. Mm. And the vast majority in the people could have been swayed either way because they didn't really have a fundamental understanding of what it actually meant. Mm -hmm. Would you say that'd be a fair assessment? Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So what is the term Brexit that the media picked up on and were then programming people for months, day after day, what does it mean? British exit, British exit, British exit, British exit. Mm. And when it came to cast the vote, Mm What were people programmed to more likely choose? Oh, guess what? Mm. Now, if the UK media had, instead of using the term Brexit, had hooked onto the UK Stay campaign, (laughs) Britain'd still be in Europe. Mm. Mm. Mm -hmm. And nobody's talking about that, but to me it's the elusive obvious. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't get to choose as human beings, as cybernetic organisms, we don't get to choose whether or not we get programmed. We get programmed by our environment. We're yeah. adaptive to our environment. It's mm-hmm. part of our structure DNA. It's how That's we, how we're made. Mm. And say, thankfully, so we don't have to learn to walk every day, right? The question we should be asking ourselves to take charge of the life, to star in the movie of our life, not be an extra in somebody else's, is how do we want to be programmed? And if you want to answer that question with something like, I want to be programmed to be consistently negative unconsciously on a consistent basis so that I can always come from a place of why I can't do something rather than how I can, then yeah, go watch the media. Does that answer your question?
0: (laughs) Perfectly answers my question. I've been saying this for a long time and I think it's crucial that people
1: understand
0: the amount of influence that the media has on how they are, how they're
1: programmed. Unconsciously way, way more than consciously. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, just, it, it's almost tragic because, again, it used to be a case of the media had high moral code, it had higher standards, but now mm. we've got massive cutthroat competitiveness in the business. Yeah. There are huge egos involved in you know, getting your name on an article. There's huge egos involved in being an anchor on a stage and, and having to look a certain way. And it's fully commercially driven at the highest levels. So uh, with other agendas as well, when you factor in yeah, politics and lobbyists and bureaucracy and, and yeah, heavyweight advertising accounts and all the rest of it, let's just take all of that out. Mm. But we get programmed with an agenda that doesn't serve our best interests or doesn't have our best interests at heart. And that's all you need to know mm. to turn it off and not look back. Yeah. Now, I'd invite people to try it for seven days. And I'll already tell you what will happen. For the first three days, people are going to freak out because they go to the media to get their certainty as to what they think is going on. Mm. And so without that certainty, and without the muscle that's been built to handle uncertainty, what will happen is, they will start craving, I just wanna look at the headlines. Now you're sitting on the the subway, and somebody's reading a paper next to it, you're gonna be looking over their shoulder trying to read their paper. Mm. It's habit, it's okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just, you know, trying to break that habit. I tell you something, you ever been on holiday where after seven days of no Wi Fi, you suddenly stop freaking out and relax? <laughs> and you start feeling better and you start having more access to joy and you're sleeping more soundly at night? Hmm, after seven to 10 days of no media, oh, you relax. You realize that you don't need to know about all of the crap that's going on in the world that mm. they're telling you is what's going on in the world. Mm. And think about it. And then we'll stop laboring this point because you can tell <laughs> I'm, I'm passionate about you this, are, right? You
0: are, you are, absolutely. No, but
1: why? I mean, in. in in, in my common sense corner, why would you want to get out of bed, sit down and be fed information about somebody you've never met in a country you've probably never been to or will visit and all of the horrible things that are going on in their lives, yeah, or a county you've never been to or ever visit and all the bad stuff that's happened to them mm. and soak all of that up while you're eating your cornflakes. Go have a nice day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. I rest my case. Yeah. No, you're you're absolutely. In my opinion, you're absolutely right, and scientifically, you're absolutely right. So, <laughs> I'd like to speak to you um, about your book. Uh, it, it looks. I've not read it. I've read p- parts that you published beforehand, and it seems like a manual to conquering adversity, which we spoke about earlier as being something that is is very important. Um, it was. It was probably two years close to two years ago that you published a video that came as a surprise to a lot of people, um, saying that you were um, going away for a holiday, something to that effect. Um, maybe sort of tell us what, what sort of happened there? How did that, um, that news reach you? And what was your, your reaction to it? Because I mean, in terms of dealing with adversity, I'd imagine that to be
1: fairly high up the scale. Uh, it was uh, certainly an adventure. And, you know, let's cut to the chase. You know, I spent six months in jail, <laughs> right? And as the only non-criminal in one of Britain's toughest jails, mm-hmm. and you know, I've I've shared the story on on some of the other uh, uh, videos I've done, but I'll, I'll encapsulate it here for the um, for the viewers because you know, it's that there's a lot of lessons there for all of us at many different levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I learned a lot about. Yeah, many things myself, my ego, my um, yeah, the, the the system, how business works in litigation. And it was really the result of a civil action. Uh, I was in court arguing with a major multinational, multi-billion dollar company, HP, mm-hmm. uh, over some business deals I'd done many years before when I lived in Dubai. And I'd bought $12.5 million worth of goods. You know, I'd paid for it in full. Mm-hmm. I had, was under no contract whatsoever that I couldn't resell it. You know, I wasn't a distributor. And I resold the goods at a small margin, you know, 1% or 2%, very tight margins in IT. And I could have bought the goods probably about for the same price that I sold it out from the open market.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And six years later, they knock on my door with a very ruthless, you know, heavy-handed law firm in, the, in London. And um, I, when I was living in England, suing me for what I asserted was a fake loss of $17 million. And I'm like, what? And freezing all of my accounts. And I'm like, where's that coming from? They said, well, we didn't know you were going to resell it. I said, well, you didn't tell me I couldn't. Yeah? Show me a contract anywhere with my signature on that states that I couldn't resell, any terms and conditions. In fact, here are all the terms and conditions yeah, of all of the deals we did. And all it was is that I had to pay for it, which I did in mm-hmm. full. How much money did you make on the $12.5 million? Oh, we're not telling you that. Why? Because obviously if they did, they couldn't substantiate a loss if they admit to making a profit. Anyway, I thought no judge in his right mind would ever entertain that getting to court. And the reality is it never did get to court those allegations were withdrawn,
2: All
1: hmm. right, They never, and, and no judge would, in, in my mind, would have ever given that credence with the kind of you know, information that I would have been able to provide,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? And they knew that I was reselling it because some of the people I sold it to paid them directly. Hmm. So why did they keep selling me goods? Because yeah, they were making money on it. Anyway, it wasn't about that. It was about could they force me into a quick settlement so they could make a profit center out of it? And they admitted that after a couple of hours. They says, look, we don't really want to go to court with this. Give us some money, we'll make it all go away. Now, I, I I talk in the book, and some people are probably familiar with the term "Indigo Children." Yeah, I'm, I class myself as a first-generation classic Indigo, born in the early '70s. Hmm. Yeah, we have a penchant for yeah, resisting institutional authority. Yeah, we don't like rules. We play by our own rules. You know, we have a higher sense of what we believe to be yeah, a, a moral yeah uh, sense, and if we think it's right, we'll do it, and if we don't, we won't irrespective of what some outdated archaic system will, you know, try to enforce. Yeah. Gets us into trouble a lot. Yeah, most Indigos end up successful or either in jail, and I can now tick both boxes. So, yeah, but on that note, uh, they sued me for contempt of court six months later, because I wasn't going to give in on the settlement. Mm. And they knew it would never really get to court, so they, they pulled another string. And one of my mentors, Dan Pena, who I know sat here,
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, Dan taught me a, a valuable lesson. He said, in business litigation is a tool. That's all it is. It's not about who's right or wrong. That's a moralistic fantasy that doesn't exist in court, mm. right? Plays second fiddle to the distortion of context in order to win your point yeah, or you know, your position. Mm. And so they sued me for contempt by saying that I breached the freezing order, which I looked at their argument and how it was constructed and how they tried to put this in. I thought it was a chess move. Yes, litigation is a tool. Mm. And they're good players, but I thought, how they've actually tried to frame that? You've got to be kidding me! Yeah, one example they said that you know, i have not pro- provided the bank statements. Well, no, I went to provide my bank statements, and they said no. You know, you tell us where they are. We prepare full letters of authority. You sign the bank statements, uh, so you sign the authority letters, and we go to your bank and get the statements. Not a problem. Hmm. I signed every single one. They sue me six months later because two of the banks haven't responded. Yeah, that kind of stuff. I'm hmm. like, f- no way. I, they say I paid my CEO. Uh, yeah, and on the day of the freezing order, yeah, well, my my CFO paid my CEO on the day of the freezing order that they wouldn't allow me to talk to to stop the transfer, mm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And the freezing order stated that I could pay anything under the normal lawful course of business. Mm. Well, how do you demonstrate normal course of business to a multi-billion-dollar company versus a, you know, somebody trying to make payroll on Friday? Yeah. Uh, so you yeah. can't define normal in business. You have to define lawful, and lawful was was it owed? And we demonstrated it was owed anyway. <laughs> Long story short, they sold it to the judge, I underestimated how it worked in court, mm-hmm. and he sentenced me initially to 18 months, which was yeah, unheard of as a civil prisoner, non-criminal, mm. never been arrested, never been accused of a crime. I still don't have a criminal record. <laughs> right? they, you serve half an automatic release. I appealed, they dropped it to 12 months, which means I serve six. Now, what became so magical out of this and the reason I'm so grateful for how it unfolded mm-hmm. in you know as the river of life bends and I think I wrote that on my first my first letter yeah <laughs> yeah I went to go when it looked like it was heading south and my, my girl turned around she says why is this happening it's not going the way we want and I learned a lot about how the court system operates mm. yeah I said well look honey you know there's this chance I could actually be going away here yeah and if I do I've been very grateful, very humbled, the fact that my message has inspired millions of people around the world for the last 20 years. For whatever reason, I've been chosen for a path where uh, I've had a voice to be able to share and some insights to be able to share that other people may not yet have had the fortune to to learn, hence why we're here to be able to help share some of that. Mm -hmm. And hopefully it'll resonate with some people. So, but some of the people that could probably help the most may never get to see it because they're in somewhere like jail. Mm -hmm. And if the universe wants to send me away to try to carry a torch into a dark place to help some people that would normally never get the help. Mm -hmm. Honey, let me go. (laughs) And I never once went in with the identity of a prisoner. Mm -hmm. I went in with the absolute certainty that I was a secret agent of change. (laughs) And so I went in to make a difference. And as it unfolded, I wrote to my high-level coaching clients and my advanced coaching students, every two weeks I wrote a letter that essentially said, listen, to begin with, I said, I don't know how this or why this is happening, but complaining at what's already happened is futile. Resisting what has already happened is stupid. Yeah, Trying to bitch about the fact the river's bent left when you wanted it to go straight is a waste of oxygen.
2: Mm.
1: Yeah, You learn how to sail. What a phenomenal opportunity for me to demonstrate what I've been teaching you guys for the last few years in a real environment or what I call a graduation event. And Elliot, we all get graduation events. <laughs> If you're a personal trainer, expect to get a health challenge so that you can demonstrate to your clients you can walk your talk. Mm. If you're a relationship coach, expect to have marriage problems so that you can demonstrate that you you know don't just think about it, but you actually live it. What you teach, mm. yeah. So, and for me, I'm a, <laughs> i am teach positive psychology and, and how to you know, navigate the river of life. Yeah, go throw him in jail, see how he copes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I I get that. And so I wrote these letters, and it became part manual. Yeah, how-to manual, mm-hmm. part journal, part you couldn't make it up, but it was real. Yeah. And when I came out after six months, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm very grateful of, of the impact that's had, and you know, changed a lot of lives, got a lot of the prisoners off drugs, stopped suicides, you know, uh, changed the intake system for new prisoners on how the psychology has managed to help reduce reoffending. Yeah, you know, I won a national award for the work that I was doing while I was in there on some of the uh, ways I was helping. Yeah, you know, I. I you know, got letters of commendation from the governors, from the prisoners, from the officers. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was an incredible, you know, again, one of the most inspiring and, and phenomenal adventures I've ever had the privilege of living,
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, and yeah, I lost my business. I went from 53 staff to three staff in three weeks. You know, I got saddled with hundreds of thousands in legal debt. I mean, it was a blast, you know? <laughs> and uh, it was a real graduation event, Boom. and I'm grateful it was that and not, you know, graduation event that somebody else may have, which is a stage four cancer diagnosis. Mm-hmm. In order to learn how to deal with that anger, mm-hmm. yeah, or let go of it, mm-hmm. or resolve their hidden issues with their father they buried ten years ago and never got to say goodbye with, mm-hmm. yeah, or yeah, maybe it's yeah you know, they lose a loved one uh, at a time they weren't expecting it, yeah, or what have you. I mean, six months in jail, and again, it wasn't a pushover. Yeah, you know, three deaths in one week was the worst week I was yes. there. Yeah, you know, blood on the floor was daily occurrence. One of the most violent jails in uh, in Europe. Uh, but yeah, you know, when I came out and I yeah you know, my students turned around and said that they'd learned more from those letters in six months than following me around the world for two years on stage and that I had to publish them and I'm like well it was never meant for the public this is some high-level stuff that you know Mm -hmm. I was really happy to share and prove that that works and again the story as it unfolds in real time Mm -hmm. this wasn't written after the fact yeah Mm -hmm. this was this is as it's going I don't know what's happening from one letter to the next yeah uh but we published it and I'm very you know, as I say, honoured to, to say that you know, the, the reaction was, was just incredible I and mean, we made bestseller list in two hours I think we made Amazon number one in four hours we sold to over 20 countries on the first day and and it's literally changed the lives of virtually everybody who's read it and you know that wouldn't have come out, that wouldn't have happened had that adventure not transpired So where do you think the adventure was sent from? Is this somehow the sort
0: of universe conspiring to put you through this for a greater good? I mean, is that the way that you
1: Einstein said, the most powerful question a person can ask or answer in their lifetime is, do we live in a friendly or hostile universe? And if you choose those answers, let's pick one. I live in a friendly universe. That's my answer. I believe I'm a reverse paranoid, an inverse paranoid. I believe the entire world and universe is involved in a hidden conspiracy to make me happy and successful. Right? Now, when you come at it from that perspective, and that's your default ground of being, your model of the world, mm-hmm. then you can, it's a lot easier to say on, with authenticity, yes. not just intellectually, yeah. that everything happens for a reason, that serves me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that <laughs> it's for the greater good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you come from a place that you live in a hostile universe, that's the material base, the Darwinian mentality, then you are fear-based by design. In other words, there's an out there, out there. It's separate from me and I'm coming from a survival mentality. Everything with teeth can eat me and therefore I'm always on guard and I'm wary. Mm. Well, I, I don't live that way. That's a high cortisol path to an early heart attack. right? Pass. yeah, And pick one. Well, what is the truth? No, the truth is your truth. Mm. And my life works with a lot less stress and allows me to walk into prison smiling and walk out creating magic. <laughs> yeah? Not because I'm special, but just because I chose a different belief system. That's all. And I luckily had a bit of, of skill set, having spent a few years learning what I learned, to be able to apply it to the people where it could actually help. You know, I've got a very limited skill set. You know, you put me in, a, in how to fix a car, I'd have been useless, you know? Yeah, but you yeah. know, I, I, it put me in a place where I actually was able to use some of the limited skills that I have. So for that, I was very grateful. But ask yourself, do you live in a friendly or hostile universe? Yeah, and I, I I give my affirmations in there, I give what my beliefs are in there, I break them all down. I put, how do I develop my psychology? What, yeah, yeah, yeah. what kind of model of the world do you need to have that level of impairment where you know, something shows up and all hell's going to hell in a handbasket and everybody looks to you because you're the only one that's calm in the room and you come from a place of total certainty. Move, I'll handle it. And it's not from a place of ego or significance, it's a calm, serene level of knowing that life's got your back. Yeah, how do you develop that? Yeah, it's not, it doesn't happen by chance, it happens by choice. Mm -hmm. but people don't have a framework for instilling that, which is why the book's been so powerful for so many.
0: Hmm. I just think that's such a fascinating insight into your mindset, you know, that something like that can happen. Uh, The the reaction for most people would be, oh my God, my life's over, this is a catastrophe, what the hell am I going to do? You know, they don't go into jail smiling. (laughs) 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 You know, I just think... uh, yeah, like, how, how do you go about creating a mindset like that?
1: It's, it's conditioned over time with the compass needle. Yeah. Yeah, and, and if people want a... <laughs> not watching the media. <laughs> uh, uh, if you want a bit more biology around this, and, and Bruce Lipton talks about this, you know, Joe Dispenza talks about this, but I, I'll demonstrate, because this is such a powerful concept mm-hmm. that I'm about to share, that if people really understood, you would understand why I was able to do that, and not because I was special, but because I had a lot of help biochemically, Mm. right? And that is this, every cell of your body, 50 plus trillion cells, uh, has what's called a receptor site around it. And that receptor site interfaces with the outside world. Now I'm gonna give you a macro example of the human body is surrounded by skin. That skin reacts to its outer environment. If you go in the sunshine, it's gonna tan or burn. (laughs) If you go into, you know, live in, Iceland at winter, right, then you're not gonna tan. Now you're gonna get pale. If you go into a cold environment, it's gonna shiver and adapt. If you go into a warm environment, it's gonna sweat and adapt. Mm-hmm. Its job is to adapt to the external environment. Now, your cells are swimming around in an internal in, in your body, but they have an environment, an external environment that is, let's call it a biochemical soup. Right? Now, every thought that you think produces a chemical, mm-hmm. a neuropeptide, a neurotransmitter. Every thought that you think affects the biochemistry of your body. You think happy thoughts, you will produce dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, Mm. yeah, and you'll feel good. The after effect of those thoughts we call emotions, the feelings. Mm. You think angry thoughts, depressing thoughts, then yeah, you're gonna start producing cortisol and adrenaline uh, and blocking serotonin. You're gonna start feeling lousy. So that soup that's inside the body Imagine it as weather for the skin of the cells. Now, if you think consistently negative thoughts, the internal temperature of that environment is gonna be cold, so your cells' receptor sites are gonna start wearing hats and scarves. With me so far? Yep. Mm -hmm. If you think consistently positive thoughts and you've got Mm -hmm. sunshine going on inside the body on a consistent basis, over Mm -hmm. time, your cells will adapt to that environment just like your outer skin adapts to the sunshine. And so that it will modify, your cells will modify their receptor sites in order to adapt to that environment. A great example is coffee. If you drink coffee for five times a day, after a year, you have a cup of coffee before bed, you can still sleep. Because your cells have modified their receptor sites to a high caffeine, high cortisol, high adrenaline-based environment, Mm. and it doesn't affect you. But if you've never drank coffee, give somebody a double espresso, step back and watch the fun right Mm -hmm. because those cells are not adapted to that so there's a reaction yeah now here's where it gets very interesting if you think consistently positive thoughts and i've been in personal growth for 30 years this year if i can't walk my talk walking into the yeah a a place like that i don't deserve to be on stage telling people how to be happy Hmm. how to cope with stress how to how to live a successful life yeah i should never write another word and you should never listen to another podcast Right, that was simply a graduation event and between me and life, not between me and trying to prove anything.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You
1: know, I'm not trying to, hey, look at me. That's you know, that's that level of non-humility is partly what put me in court in the first place with my ego. Because when I went to the contempt, I was there to prove that HP were a bunch of so-and-so's, yeah. not to be contrite with the judge, which is why he slammed me. Right? So I, I had to learn a lot about that that aspect, you know, yeah. states and stages, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, if I consistently think positive thoughts over time, my Cells are going to adapt to wearing, you know, Speedos and Budgie smugglers and like you know, putting on sun cream and sunglasses, right? Yeah. Let's say I start thinking a negative thought. At that point, I put in some chemicals into my body that it's not used to. Mm. Now nature takes the path of least resistance. We know that. Go to electricity. You can have a complicated circuit, but you have one small short in that circuit. And the whole circuit fails because electricity takes the path of least resistance. Now, how does it do that and why does it do that? Science won't tell you. Hmm. Does it go and assess every different viable aspect, run it through a spreadsheet, say, well, this is actually the the easiest way we'll take? No, it just knows. It's built into the rule set of how the physical world operates. Hmm. And we understand that rule set very well. We've reverse engineered it through observation from Copernicus through to Galileo into Newton. Mm-hmm. Right, We know the physical rules of how this physical world works with exceptional precision. Yeah, we've figured out our, the three main sciences of physics, biology, and chemistry, which deals with particles, yeah, molecules, and, and cells, to such an extent we can fix a human body or put a man on the moon. We've right? done it. Now, we're still working within a subset called the physical matter-reality. Mm. We haven't figured out that that just happens to be a subset of something more fundamental, a superset that we call consciousness. Science won't get there because they can't figure that out yet. Right? <laughs> but coming back to the cells, nature takes the path of least resistance. So I start thinking a negative thought. What the cells are saying is, hang on a minute, whoa, 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 we've got two choices. 50 trillion of us can give up our Speedos and our sunglasses and go and change our wardrobe and get you know, hats, scarves, and gloves Or we can tell this one guy upstairs to stop thinking negative thoughts and start thinking positive, which is the path of least resistance. Hmm. Now, the challenge and the sad fact is for most people watching this is that it works the opposite way. Mm -hmm. We've been conditioned so our compass needle's default magnetic north points in a negative direction. So what happens? We go to a seminar. We listen to a podcast like Inspire Edinburgh. (laughs) And we get all jazzed up. And we've decided I'm going to make a stand. I'm going to stop, you know, seeing the hole in the donut and I'm going to see life from a place of possibility. I'm going to start asking how I can, not telling myself why I can't. And we now start putting positive thoughts in here, which produce positive thinking chemicals, which create positive sunshine weather inside the body. And you've got 50 trillion chemicals that say, whoa, 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 hang on a minute. We've got We've been wearing hats and scarves and gloves and we've got Mm. a winter wardrobe that we've been quite comfortable in for the last 20 years and you now want to go, all of us to go to Bloomingdale's and change our wardrobe. Well, it's gonna be far easier to convince you to stop thinking sunshine and get us back to the snow. And Mm. it sends chemical, literally chemicals, Mm -hmm. up the neural pathways including straight at the bottom of the cerebral cortex, yeah, through the spine, Mm. which induce us to think negative again, Mm. right? And what it does, it shows up as self-doubt, negative Mm self-talk, yeah, going back to destructive habits, and once you realize that all it is, it's the body following its pre-programmed rule set of the path of least resistance, and all you need to do is override that for about three to four weeks and reckon, oh yeah, that's that self-talk. That's my cells just saying, hey, you sure you want us to change the wardrobe? Because we don't want to go and change our wardrobe All you know, 50 trillion cells, mm-hmm. hang up our, you know, go burn our hats and scarves and get, you know, sunshine and sunglasses and then put us back in the cold. That's what's going on. So when I walk mm-hmm. into prison and I feel all of the emotions everyone else would feel, doubt, confusion, you know, sadness, mm-hmm. you yeah, uncertainty. And if I have any of those thoughts, which I did, mm-hmm. It's natural, it's human. I got 50 trillion cells saying, yo, dude, we got your back. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, we're a sunshine machine here. Yeah, tell him to start thinking sunshine. He can do this. Yeah, we don't want winter down here. You're not, that's not what you're about. Look at us, we're, all, we're Yeah, pass the suntan lotion, dude. And it's so much more easier to, to think you know, like that when you have a body that's programmed to do it for you over time. Instead of, unfortunately, Most people's body wages chemical warfare against itself when you decide you want to change your mindset.
0: So, I mean, how do you create an environment
1: that's conducive towards that? Surround (laughs) yourself with positive messages, positive people, and keep programming your compass needle in the right direction. That's it. Yeah. Right? Okay. It's not magic. It's it's mechanics. Uh Uh-huh. Right? How do you want to be programmed? not, am I going to get programmed? You can't answer that question, it's been answered for you by evolution. Mm. How do I want to be programmed? Yeah. And that's why we're living in a time today where you can, oh, I don't have a peer group, or yes, you do, it's online. You don't need to know Richard Branson to listen to Richard Branson's messages. You don't need to have spent 15 years hanging around with Tony Robbins and, and listening to Tony, mm. right, when you can go and listen to Tony's podcasts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, You don't need to have ever met people like, you know, Arianasis or Wayne Diet to go read their books. Yeah. We have a choice, but guess what? If you haven't made that choice consistently, what does your body want to tell you? No, turn on Netflix and have some escapism. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, reach for the ice cream. Yeah. All of that stuff. Yeah. Jeez. press the snooze button. Mm. And all you need to do is a short window of turning around with complete congruency, so not only are you intellectualizing it, which means nothing. Mm. Remember, knowing and not doing is the same as not knowing, and most mm. people, that's their life. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: But yeah. uniting the heart and mind together in unification, where you emotionally get it, it becomes who you are. It's like, no, 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 right? Burn your hats, burn your scarves, right? I'm living a life of sunshine, and nobody ain't talking me out of it, right? It ain't, Yeah, it's not happening. I am. I am on task. Sunshine, here we come. I've lived in the cold for too damn long. You know, I've drank coffee for way too long. I'm now getting on a juice diet, right? And yes, uh-huh. I'll deal with the headaches. But it's what I want and no one's talking me out of it. That level of resolve, that level of re- you know, resolution in your life is what creates the change that'll override the neural pathway messages that come up from the cells to say, are you sure? There's 50 trillion of us here. That's a lot of work for us to change our receptor sites over the next, like, 21 days, if you ain't serious. Mm. So prove you serious.
0: That's powerful. It really is.
1: <laughs> I'd
0: normally say at this stage, uh, I'd like to ask you some deeper questions, but we're, <laughs> <laughs> we're already there. <laughs> yeah, shoot. Yeah. Um, the first question that I'm going to ask you is, uh, uh, anyone that listens to this regularly will know it's one of my staples. It's around purpose. Um, you know, in terms of your life, what do you kind of feel is
1: your own purpose? I feel personally that my, my mission is to help raise the global consciousness of humanity. Hmm. Now, that isn't some altruistic, ego-driven, you know, oh, look at me. I don't care if people know my name. Yeah, you know, when I get on stage to share a message, I sit here, I don't care if people, you know, it's not about me. That's, I don't need the ego stroke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, There was a time in my life I did, and that's what I craved, and you know, but hopefully we grow through that once you, the journey of significance is replaced you know, through a journey of growth and contribution. Mm. And and that requires staying humble and staying in check because it's easy to get caught up in your own ego sometimes and believe your own bullshit. <laughs> yeah, and I, I've got to be careful of that. Mm-hmm. So, but for me, when I say raise the global consciousness of humanity, I don't want everybody, I, I'm not living with the illusion that we'll be in world peace and everyone joins hands and sings carols. Everyone's an ASME. Yeah, never going to happen. Yeah. we're in earth school for a reason. Hmm. We're here to grow and contribute, and we're here to learn how to become better versions of ourselves. And if that means that somebody grows from being a victim to being angry, that's actually a plus. Hmm. There's more energy and anger with which to go live a life of meaning on the back end of that than there is to sit there and be a victim in apathy for the rest of your life. Hmm. So it's not about getting everyone to a state of unconditional loving utopia. Hmm. That doesn't work. Right? We're here in Earth School, and here's what I know: If you get to a place of where you're done and you graduated, and there's nothing else to learn, and you're unconditional love and you're an Asmi, expect a bus to come along and knock you over and take you out of the game. <laughs> you don't need to be here anymore. You graduated. Well done. Go to college wherever that may be, in the next reality frame. Yeah. Or some people, you know, may want to stay on and be a teacher, like Eckhart Tolle, or you know, some of the spiritual masters around the world. But yeah, for me, I'm, I'm 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 so far away from college, I, I'm sure I have no <laughs> idea. But yeah, so my job is to only do two things, and this is what I would encourage other people to look at as a, uh, a frame for their mission and purpose. The only two things that I can do is to be the best example of who I can be and be the invitation for others, not the imposition. I've got no right to tell anybody to raise their consciousness, who the hell am I? I've got no right to tell you that you can be better than who you are. I've got a right to hold up a mirror to show you your own greatness, mm-hmm. which is all I ever do. Because mm-hmm. most people's mirror is pretty foggy. It's foggy because from zero to seven, they've got some lousy beliefs they've never really seen or questioned. Yeah, it's it's foggy because they listen to the media and get programmed as to why the world doesn't work rather than why it does. It's foggy because they hang around with people that you know get a kick out of um, being in a victim mentality. When I say a kick, I don't mean like, you know, a. A conscious kick, I'm on about. They get their connection, they get the significance, their story now defines them mm-hmm. rather than risk the courage to let go of it and move forward and into a new part of their life. So, so many people have been surrounded in that level of environment that the, the mirror that's reflecting back their own greatness is so foggy, they don't see it, they don't believe it. You know, if I've got one purpose on this podcast, is to tell people that nobody has the right to tell you you're not good enough, hmm. nobody says you can't do it. Mm. Yeah, you, you were born for greatness. You were born a miracle. 400 million sperm and you show up. mean, mm. Christ, that's, that, that's better odds than the Olympic gold. Yeah. And you won. Yeah? Yeah. Why did you want to be here so badly?
2: Mm.
1: It's not to work 40 years for somebody you don't like in a job you can't stand so you can retire and die within 18 months, which is the average death from retirement these days because people finally think that I've got to the end and now I don't have to do anything mm. and realize that life doesn't support you not doing anything, you're here to grow and contribute. So when you stop growing and contributing, expect a bus, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. yeah, or a heart attack or you know, whatever. So yeah. Yeah, from, from my side, I want to help raise the global consciousness of humanity by allowing them to glimpse their own uniqueness, their own greatness, and understand that the world does work if you come at it from the right attitude.
0: Love that. That's so awesome.
1: <laughs> the, the last time I heard
0: you say, um, what, one of the things that you teach... Um, a lot of your mentees, devotees and such, is an I am statement. And the last time I heard you say yours, um, and I know it actually is, I am a divine and guided soul who acts as an open channel for God's wisdom, a powerful agent of positive change who is born to reveal the greatness in others. Well done. (laughs) Thank you. You you rehearsed that one. (laughs) I I know it, I just know it. Um, in, In the context of that, what does God mean to you?
1: Wow, now, <laughs> yeah. H- h- how to lose friends and alienate people on a podcast, yeah. <laughs> <sighs> Every, God, everyone's
0: got their own interpretation of God. I don't, it, you know, it, it might be inherently I, divisive, but I wonder what you mean I,
1: I by that. I want to give a little context here because some people bash religion, some people avoid religion, some people are so addicted to their belief systems around religion that they daren't question the beliefs they're most certain about. And the, the way that I see yeah, religion, and I've obviously looked at this in in a lot of detail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm not religious. I don't subscribe to organised religion. Do I believe in a higher power? How can you not? Mm. Right? When you, yeah, I think people like you know the the great yeah um, Christopher Hitchin, yeah, who's no longer with us, yeah. who was so focused on bashing religion that he threw the baby out with the bathwater, like Richard Dawkins does. All right? They are material based Newtonian paradigms that essentially come from a place of saying, no, there is no higher level spirit God. And what they're doing is they're trying to uh, take away the the downside of where I see the formation of how religions came about. And yeah, I I want to kind of give a little insight into that, which may be helpful for some of the people, because a lot of the modern people now are starting to question
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. religion is on a decline in many aspects, and, and let's take Christianity, for example. Mm-hmm. All right, and again, this is not meant to be disrespectful in any way whatsoever. Sure. No, no. You know, the, the, the moral values that Jesus taught and the insight that Jesus bought was so far ahead of his time that unfortunately people can only hear from the level that they're at. And so if you've got somebody calibrating an as me that's talking to people that are in to me, huh. they're not gonna hear an as me message, they're gonna hear a to me interpretation of an as me message. Yeah. And therefore, distortion becomes the norm. So, yeah, you know, and let's give one example in yeah, you know, take the Old Testament, the Garden of Eden. Right, a lot of modern people are saying, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Hang on a minute." So you've got this guy called yeah, you know, Jesus, who right was essentially this you know, was his own dad, who if you su- surrender telepathically to him through a Pledge of Allegiance, mm. he will remove a hidden curse from your body that was put there because some woman who was made out of a, a bloke's rib, ate a magical apple because of a talking snake. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah, you can understand why some people in modern society have an issue with that. But, let's chunk back. Mm. 200 years ago, only 2% of the world was literate. <laughs> Being able to read and write was the privilege of the elite. Either the scholars or the religious teachers or the the village elders or the aristocracy or the political power. They're the only people who could read or write. So how has knowledge been passed down in human generations for centuries? Through story, Mm. around the campfire. Because stories allow you to take somebody on a journey without having to memorize things by rote, which is why school doesn't work. That's why stories are so powerful. That's why Hollywood is bigger than education, right? Yeah. So, how do you communicate in stories? What's the most powerful way? Well, metaphor. It's how the brain works. The brain likes to take something it doesn't know and put it over next to something it does know, and metaphors allow you to cross that divide. And so, if you take the story of the Garden of Eden, what's the metaphor that's being shared? It's actually beautiful, it's a, it's a powerful story. You have the tree of knowledge and you have the tree of life. What you should you not eat from? Don't eat from the tree of knowledge. How I interpret that is that, whoa, whoa, all you need is within you now. You were born good enough. You don't need something external in order to validate your sense of self. Once you know you've eaten from the tree of life, that you are all you are, there's nothing missing, you were born perfect, you can choose to go to the tree of knowledge if you wish. But how most people are conditioned is that I'm not good enough unless Mm -hmm. I eat from the tree of knowledge. Mm. Unless I get my degree, my MBA, my PhD, my whatever it is, my validation, my pat on the back from somebody else. No, you were born good enough. Eat from the tree of life. You go to the tree of knowledge, you're essentially reinforcing the fear that you're not enough. And that's how I interpret something like that. It's beautiful. But if you start getting hooked up in the dogma of saying, no, 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 there was a talking snake, (laughs) right? I'm sorry, we've got a challenge, right? But if you go back 30,000 years, when it rained, we wondered why. Man looked up at the sky and it's like, what is this? We had a thirst for knowledge. Yeah, was God angry at us because he was crying? Or was he happy with us and he was sending us a gift to refill the rivers? We didn't know. So what does mankind do 30,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, whatever it may be, when we don't know? We do what we've always done. We project the unknown into what we actually know to give it some level of certainty. Mm -hmm. So we make stuff up by projecting what we know into it. And this is why God didn't create man in his own image. Mm. Man created God in his own image, which is why the early religions came through with a God that doesn't come from unconditional love. It comes from the projections of all of the, the faults of, of personality that were prevalent at the time, of fear, anger, you know, wrath, retribution, mm. which is how life was lived back then. That's how political you know, establishments controlled, because the level of consciousness of humanity back then wasn't as high as it is now. And so, yeah, you know, mm. today, we understand gravitation, precipitation, evaporation. And when it rains, yeah, we understand it. We don't get scared anymore. That can still ruin your barbecue, but we're not afraid of it. Mm. So we don't make stuff up. Mm. So what, where religion came in is it was a vehicle with which to know the non-physical. Because we understood there was so much we didn't know, so we made stuff up to fill the gap and we projected what we knew as best we could into stuff to try to give it some level of meaning. So back then, religion was a very good way at that time of being able to build a relationship to the unknown with the metaphysical, mm-hmm. the non-physical. Mm-hmm. But guess what? Just as a horse and cart was a great way to get around Edinburgh yeah, 100 years ago, Which was superseded by a car, Mm -hmm. which was superseded by a train, which was superseded by a jet, which Mm -hmm. was superseded by a rocket ship. Religion was a beautiful horse and cart that got people around to know the metaphysical back then. But there's better vehicles to know that now. (laughs) Spirituality, Mm -hmm. understanding unconditional love, Mm -hmm. exploring consciousness, Mm Yeah, understanding digital physics these days and, and the breach between the divine that doesn't come with rules and conditions that you have to say a Hail Mary every 20 minutes. That d- comes with um, rules that say you have to put money in the pot every Friday. Yeah, that, otherwise Santa's not gonna come down the chimney. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that, that stuff was great and served a purpose in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But there's better ways to know what we were trying to know back then now with a more elevated sense of consciousness, mm-hmm. which, if you look at the spiritual masters, Jesus never said, "Go read a book." Jesus never said, "Go to church on Sunday." <laughs> right? What Jesus said was essentially he was teaching unconditional love. Love thy neighbour as thyself. Mm. Do not judge, lest ye be judged. As a man thinketh, so he is. Yeah, you, you've got a, you've got a, a, a way of him trying to interpret or or. Yeah, give messages that point to you becoming a better version of yourself through basically raising love and lowering fear. And for 2,000 years, we basically increased fear around it if you didn't raise your love. <laughs> yeah, and follow my rules. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, that's how we differs from Buddha. You know, the Buddha didn't teach unconditional love. The Buddha taught enlightenment, mm. right, which is a whole different aspect. That's merging in union into oneness. Right? But the world wasn't ready for that in the West or, you know, uh, certainly from the uh, the sort of Judeo-Christianic you know, interpretation, it was all about love. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, what is God? God is whatever label you want to put on the intelligence, the loving intelligence that governs this game. Yeah, and you can have infinite intelligence. You can have the quantum fields. You can have the divine. You can have you know, nature. You can have evolution if you're a scientist, biologist, whatever. I don't care what label you give. The travesty of humanity is that we've gone to war for centuries and killed each other over whose label is right. Mm. Mm -hmm. So, for me, what is God? Mm. It's part of the intelligence and the governing field of love that allows us to be part of this game to grow and contribute to be a better part of who we are. Are we a part of that? Yes, of course we are. Mm-hmm. You can't not be a part of that. And again, every religious spiritual master taught the same thing. Here's another analogy. You take two blood cells in your body. Red blood cell and a white blood cell.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Both different colors. Both born at different times. Both gonna die at different times. Both got different jobs to do. One takes hemoglobin and you know, delivers it around the body and. One takes bacteria and dumps it into the lymph. But your red and white blood cells coexist in harmony in the same environment called the bloodstream. Let's just say a red and white blood cell meet each other. They would have a sense of individuation. They would have a sense of individuality. You're a red blood cell, I'm a white blood cell. I have a different birthday and I'm on a different path. Mm -hmm. And we cross in the bloodstream. But we're part of a bigger organism called a human body. Mm -hmm. Now we don't throw a funeral every time we lose a blood cell. But let's put that in a more local context. You have yourself or myself, and you have, let's say somebody in India. Two different colors, born at two different times, (laughs) gonna die at two different times, different paths in life. But what if we were just individual blood cells in the universal body of consciousness? Yeah, yeah. Would that upset people if it was a possibility? Would it help them reconcile the illusion of separateness? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Because if that allows us to come and bury our differences and learn how to get on at a higher level, mm-hmm. rather than reinforce our fear and our ego. Yeah. Again, do you live in a friendly or hostile universe? Because that has a very different path on how you treat your neighbour. Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, I'm so glad I asked that question What an incredible answer <laughs> What would you like your legacy to be?
1: Well, um, uh, again, I, I have no association to some level of edifying anything I mean, If I was to go tomorrow mm-hmm. and, and I have a belief system that very easily reconciles death I have zero fear of death Because I understand death is not the opposite of life you know, death is the opposite of birth, mm-hmm. it's like the blood cell analogy. Yeah. I get reborn into a different part of the body somewhere and go on my next journey. So, you know, I've been, I believe that part of my purpose here is to help grow and contribute and, and to raise the global consciousness of humanity. Mm-hmm. Let's just say I was required in a different reality frame somewhere. Sure. Yeah, And there's many different reality frames. This happens to be one, mm-hmm. this physical universe. When you sleep and you go dreaming at night, you turn into a different reality frame. Mm. It's just as real, you're still there. Your physical body's not, but you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but let's just say there's another reality frame or another pli- place on, even on this one, in Earth somewhere. And let's just say the governing intelligence, without getting into labels, decides that I was best to go help serve them there, and that means I need to be taken out of this movie I'm acting in and pick up a new script and go start in another movie. Yeah. And if they felt, or it felt, whatever label, that that was best for the greater good, and there's some other actors or actresses I can help in a movie somewhere else by starring there yeah, in my movie, then I'd accept that in a heartbeat. No issues. Yeah, I'm a George Lucas fan. Many people our age are. Yeah, none of this new Disney crap, by the way, that has commercial agenda and none of the genius. But yeah, we'll leave that aside. But um, no, uh, as a Jedi, if, if if I'm here as a uh, some level of, of Jedi that, as we all are, to, to help serve, and I needed to be, you know, there's some Clone Wars kicking off somewhere on another planet, and I need to be sent in there because they think it'll help. Yeah, I would surrender this movie in a heartbeat and go do it if that meant helping. Yeah. Yeah, so I've got no fear of death. So in terms of a legacy, if I'm lucky enough to leave a thumbprint on a small part of humanity or somebody's psyche in a way that allows them to become a greater version of themselves, I'll, I'll go to sleep at night tonight and not wake up and be happy. <laughs> awesome. Uh,
0: I'm gonna ask you this one off the cuff. I'm just interested. What would you say to somebody who was a big fan or an avid follower of yours, but decided to stop following you because of what
1: happened to you in the inside track? Well, I mean, everybody has the, the right to, to choose. And for some people, it was quite polarizing when I went in because I never really gave much context to it mm. because I didn't give it much credence.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I thought it'd be laughed out of court in five minutes. I really, I really did, I, I didn't see that coming. And I firmly believe that had I, you know, if I'd have defended myself, I wouldn't have been in there because my barrister qualified from the legal school of mutism. He didn't ask one question, didn't put forward any of our arguments, so the judge mm-hmm. was left with just a one-sided laydown. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also believe, again, things are orchestrated at a higher level of intelligence. Yeah. You know, in The amount but, of difference that it's made, not, not the book to the you know, amount of people it's, it's impacted, which I'm, I'm super grateful for, but mm-hmm. the people inside. I mean, the legacy I left is currently being rolled out in prisons across the UK. It's being adopted in prisons in Australia. You know, I designed an entire new booklet for, that helps shift the mindset of the intake of the people coming in because there was nothing for them. Mm. Yeah, so yeah, that had to happen. If, for example, I'd have been acquitted on the, com- on the contempt of court charge, I'd have probably driven home, maybe clipped somebody's bike and ended up in prison some other way. <laughs> right, I had to be there. I, I believe that with every cell in my body, congruently, because mm-hmm. yeah, there's a higher game in town. So for me, I got no issues on that. But for other people, it was quite polarizing because they didn't know the context. Now, when I came out and they realized that it was all a scam, from you know, pretty much from HP, and that the allegations were pretty much yeah, mm-hmm. borderline ludicrous, and they all got dropped and all of that, mm-hmm. fair enough. A lot of people became far more loyal, and I'm very grateful for that. Or I say loyal is the wrong word. I don't. I don't want to. Seem as if I'm on a pedestal here, but a lot of people gave my work far more credence because I walked my talk in what was pretty much a a decent graduation event. (laughs) So some of the people, it was the perfect opportunity to see if I was real. And it's all right to see a motivational speaker on stage, but what happens when you throw him in jail? How Mm -hmm. does he show up then? Mm -hmm. Because that's a test. Um, For some people, it it was validation that they didn't want to follow my work anymore because... Yeah, you know, that's the path they're on. I have, you know, whether the glass is half full or half empty, Elliot doesn't alter the volume of the glass. It only reflects your you know, opinion of it, you know, your perception of it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if somebody decided to leave my work, that may have been the perfect bend in their river, in order to go find somebody else that's more suited to to where they're at at that time.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, no issues. You know, if if I upset anybody by going in, and this is something I'm actually proud of. I mean. You know, we just spent 50,000 pounds on Facebook ads for the Sage Business School, sold 50,000 pounds for the tickets. We kind of break even to get people in the room so that I can help them and impact them and offer them some of the other coaching. And of course, 50,000 people now want their money back because, yeah, that got cancelled. And I'm so, so thankful because nearly everybody held a space. There was very few people that wanted refunds because it was so out of context with how they saw me. Yeah, yourself, you know, we had that chat earlier. Yeah. It's like, wow, here's a guy that I've got a lot of benefit from that I followed for years. Oh, yeah. And whoa, he's in jail and they're writing all sorts of crap about him that, that doesn't seem to be congruent. Mm. So a lot of people say, Well, listen, yeah, you know, they follow up, especially if they follow my work, they know what the media's like. And the media was definitely looking for an opportunity to take a pot shot back since I've slagged it off for so many years. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wasn't expecting the media to be kind, right? Because yeah. you know, I'm not exactly <laughs> kind to them. Right. So yeah, that's half of the course. But, you know. A lot of people says, well, let's just hang back and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And when I came out, literally, I'd, I'd lost everything financially. I'd lost my business. Um, uh, I had to start from scratch. And I, I committed to honoring everybody that had bought tickets. All the money got spent while I was away. Mm. I came out with nothing but debt. And I committed to honoring all of the tickets people had bought. And eight months later, we put on the Sage Business School. And I gave everybody that... I'd bought a ticket, what turned out to be just incredible event. And it was the, the amount of energy that was the best one we'd ever done. It was it's incredible. Hmm. And uh, December, just a few weeks ago, I closed the master circle because people had bought that yearly program, 50,000 pounds. And that includes four incredible life-changing trips around the world. And last year, I managed to take them to Iceland for their mission purpose legacy event. We then in, in January, we then went to Croatia for the health and vitality retreat. Uh, I then took them to Bali for the relationship seminar and we just mm. got back from doing seven countries in nine days, trekking gorillas across Africa and going to Victoria Falls and, and doing and, and on the business and profits event. And that was very special for me because it closed out every promise that had been made prior to going in without having to, yeah, take away from anybody anything that they'd put in that they didn't get back. And mm. I was I was very, very grateful for that. Very very, very humbled by that. So yeah, that's um uh, that was a big part of wanting to, you know, go back to the grindstone and, and really you know, fulfill my promises yeah. as such. Mm-hmm. But no, I mean everybody's free to choose what they want to learn. Yeah. You know, I've got no right to impose that. Hmm. But yeah, I'm happy to invite them to read the book because if they do, they will probably not only get a balanced view of what happened, but get a masterclass in how to help them in their own life if anything similar in any graduation event shows up. <laughs> Great stuff.
0: What's the best piece of advice you've ever received?
1: Honestly, I don't know because you get so much and it's context derived. Yeah. You know, in, in life, Elliot, context is definitive. Mm-hmm. I learned that in court because a lot of the time they were distorting context mm-hmm. in order to, you know, uh, support a misrepresented view of the content. But, contextually the best advice I've got uh, that I, I've been given I mean George Zay my, my, my dear mentor yeah you know, when um, how soon before this goes out by the way um we're looking at uh, p- 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 Probably three, four weeks. Okay. Perfect. Because in a week's time, I'm flying in to surprise him for his 80th birthday. Oh, wow. He doesn't know I'm coming. I'm literally flying into Florida. I'm going to go have a meal with him. And, um, you know, his wife's all excited. He's all inviting me. But he doesn't know. It's a big surprise party. So I'm not ruining it by (laughs) (laughs) by, by saying it now on camera. That's okay. (laughs) Uh, So I'm so excited. I want to go see him. And he's 80 years old. You, You never know when the last time may be. You know, hopefully many more years. But I'd kick myself if I didn't go. And so I'm flying in to see George, but George turned around one time, and the best advice he he gave me really started me on the path of unfolding and deconstructing goop. Yes, yeah, so you, you know what that means. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Good opinion of other people. The good opinion of other people. Most <laughs> yeah. people spend their life swimming in goop, mm-hmm. and it was George that really helped me understand the metaphor of how other people see you. And the way that I say it is that you know we start as the in the movie of our life. And Mm -hmm. we know that because we're in every single scene. We're the only person in every scene of our own movie, which by definition means somebody else is either gonna be a supporting cast, or 99% of people in your life are gonna be film extras in your movie. (laughs) And those extras uh, aren't gonna give a second thought about you once they're out of your particular scene that they're in, right? Why? Because they star in their own movie. Mm. Now the mistake we make is that most people we feel look at us as we look at ourselves. We look at ourselves in the mirror as the star of our movie. We get up in the morning and we're the star of our movie. So we think everybody else sees us as the star of our movie, Hmm. but they don't. They see themselves as the star of their movie. And we happen to be, at best, as maybe a spouse or a sibling or something, and supporting cast in their movie or a boss, but 99% of people, you know, we play extras uh, in their movie. So the, the reality is, and this is what I, the advice I got when I was 18 years old, is that most people don't care enough about us to bother to give an opinion because they're too busy being worried about what they think you're thinking of them. Hmm. And as a result, we all walk around in this bubble of self-importance thinking that everybody's looking at our bubble of self-importance when what they're doing is walking around in their bubble of self-importance thinking that we're looking at their bubble of self-importance. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so yeah, George, the best advice I think I ever had at 18 years old, I was grateful enough to be sitting in a, a seminar listening to this man where he he didn't articulate it quite like that, but that was the message I got. Yeah. And it blew me away. it It removed the hypnosis that I'd spent most of my life, especially as a teenager, where you're trying to define your sense of self and significance in jostling for for carving out your identity. Yeah, yeah. and you know, I, I I walked out of that with far less credence to what I thought everybody else thought about me because I knew that they actually didn't.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. absolutely brilliant. <laughs> Oh, man. This is this is a lot of fun, I have to be honest. I'm enjoying <laughs> it. I'm, I'm,
1: I'm so pleased you got I hope we've been giving some value to the people at home here. I, I
0: mean, I, I, we have to. have I mean, this is just, honestly, it's like a masterclass in uh, human behaviour and uh, all the good stuff that you talk about. It's great. Loving it. I've just got two more questions. Um, this is a good one. If you had the
1: opportunity to speak to your 20-year-old self, what would you say? <laughs> I remember when Brian Rose asked me that question, yeah. uh, and the answer is probably the same. Yeah, if uh, I don't think he'd have taken the phone call because of the arrogance and ego, would never have allowed him to get advice from people that wasn't him. <laughs> uh, you know, I was so far at my own ass back those in those days. You know, it was um, it it was crazy. Yeah, but. If I was able to use my cunning powers of persuasion right now to mm-hmm. penetrate his ego yeah, no, uh, and, uh, and and offer some uh, some level of yeah, uh, insight, yeah. I I'd, apart from the fact I just want to give him a hug because he was so desperate to prove to the world he was good enough, mm. I'd have to tell him he already was there. Okay, you know that he was born good enough that he's got nothing to prove, and, and that when it comes down to it, and listen carefully, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've not done, you're worthy of love that you've got nothing to prove, nothing to defend, and nothing to conquer. And when you come from life at that place, it's magical.
2: Mm.
1: You're not involved in the grind, you're not involved in the, I must pay you know, my you know, my mortgage on time, and otherwise they'll kick me out. If they kick you out, what? You're living in a time in human history where it's impossible to starve to death. Mm. You'll have an adventure, you go live in a tent for a while, go sleep on your friend's couch for a bit until you find another way of adding value to the world and bounce back. And See, that's what makes a great movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I went in, I wrote to my clients, and I said, don't worry about me. I'm just on location for six months filming the prison scene of my movie. (laughs) And for me, that was an authentic, genuine expression because for the movie of my life, I said earlier, I want the movie to be like, wow, what a freaking movie. Comedy, drama, tragedy, romance, intrigue. A a good movie has everything. You want to walk out of the cinema, of this game, in the final scene of your movie, right breathless in wonder at what you know, who wrote that script and what level of lsd were they on when they <laughs> did it and wow right that's a movie yeah. right that that's the game i want to play so for me i also recognize that i have to show up as a professional actor no matter the script so daniel craig on some scenes is gonna be in bed with a Victoria's Secret model. And he probably secretly likes filming those scenes. Probably shoot them an extra couple of times or mess it up just to do it (laughs) again. But he also, in the script, there's a scene where he's under the Arctic ice in a frogman suit wrestling with the baddie who's trying to kill him. And he's away from his family and it's freezing cold and he's not in a five-star hotel. But his job as a professional actor is to show up and be the best self in both of those scenes regardless. Mm -hmm. And of course, there was times where yeah, you know, I'd love to have been on stage instead of in a prison cell. Uh, Being sitting here in front of you doing what I love to do instead of trying to, you know, stop suicides on the wing. Mm-hmm. But I'm a professional actor in the movie of my life and my job is to show up in every scene the best I can regardless. And there's going to be scenes like that in my movie still to come, I'm sure. You know, the Olympics is every four years. I'm sure my next graduation event will show up at some point. Yeah, most likely not prison. I think I've ticked that box. Yeah. But something else, be okay with that because life is a growth-centric experience, not a comfort-centric experience. And that would probably be the other piece of advice I'd give my younger self. Yeah. Yeah, know that life is a growth-centric experience, not a comfort-centric experience, because once you know you're in the gym, you can embrace the workout because you're an athlete. Mm. You're not trying to hide from that personal trainer guy that keeps making you lift the weights and make your arms sore. (laughs) Yeah. Different relationship to life.
0: Yeah. Dan says um, success is being all you can be 100% of the time. I mean, is that what you mean by being the best actor that you can be all
1: the time? No. yeah. <laughs> I, and, and I, I disagree with Dan on that, but I agree with Dan's sentiment. Yeah. See, Dan is encouraging people to be the best versions that they can. But the, and he may mean this, but the interpretation along that, those lines can often mean that if you screw up, <laughs> then you're not the best self. Hmm. I learn more of my lessons from the times I screw up. See, if you give the right answers in class every time, you're in the wrong class. If you are the smartest money in the room, find a smarter room. So if, for me, being my best self means having the intention to put one foot in front of the other in the best way that I can, but not holding myself accountable if I slip down. Hmm. Don't look at what you've lost, look at what you've learnt. Yeah, that, for me, is a far more empowering philosophy, what success success is not measured in a bank, it's not measured in Guthrie Castle. Yeah, all of those things are great. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. they can be a benchmark of how much value you've added. So if your mission in life is to add value, but a housewife who's bringing up five kids on her own doesn't measure her success by how many bedrooms she's yeah. got in her house. Yeah, It's by how much of a great mother she can be to her kids without freaking out and losing it and slapping one.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right, or through keeping her act together when she's crying herself to sleep at night, but doesn't show that in front of the kids because she doesn't want them to feel you know, disempowered or you know, a- a have a-, a dysfunctional role model. Sure, yeah. yeah. So for me, success is measured in my life, on my journey, by how much fear I can surrender and how much more loving choices I can choose in ever more challenging circumstances. Wow
0: okay <laughs> I t- didn't see that one coming I like it though <laughs> if you could change anything in the world
1: what would it be and why <laughs> <laughs> interesting question uh, for a start I've got absolutely no right to and yeah you know, I the world is where it's at right now uh, because of the individual collective, consciousness of the people that are in the world. Hmm. If I could change anything, it would be to help people accelerate their journey through earth school rather than resist their journey through earth school. Okay. And a lot of the times you've also got to remember that some people have to trip over and smash their head on the pavement in order to learn how to tie their shoelaces. (laughs) I've got no right to take somebody's horror story away and force them to have a script that's a comedy. its mm-hmm. mm-hmm. not my right. My right is to focus on my own movie and be the best me that I can be in it and be the invitation and the example, as I said earlier. Not, you know, run around demanding that the world appears a particular way. That's, I, that. you know, my job is to show up to hopefully inspire the world to be a better way mm-hmm. without being attached to the outcome of it.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, if you um,
0: believe in the idea of a, a soul's journey, if you like, and it's a continuous evolution and you're redeployed, you're, you're an actor, um, you know, as you, as you describe it, and you're playing the role and then you're redeployed in another role, what happens when you graduate from acting school? You know, what's the, the, the next level?
1: See, there's, there's always <laughs> another level. Yeah. We live in a, a reality here that has a very tight rule set, right? our physics, chemistry, biology. And you know, I believe, it's my personal belief, mm-hmm. uh, that you know, there are other reality frames, and these have been talked about through human history on a consistent basis, whether you call it the celestial realm, the heavenly realm, the non-physical realm, the quantum realm, doesn't matter. We live in a very tight rule set here in the physical matter reality. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the reason is, is we're here to grow up. And if we didn't have such a tight rule set, let's say that we could, bi-locate or teleport, or we weren't bound by the physical restrictions, yeah. at our current level of consciousness, we'd probably be teleporting into the ladies' locker room to spy. <laughs> or we'd be teleporting into the bank vault to run off with the jewels. Right? Yeah. If you take a kindergarten class, you wouldn't leave a loaded Beretta 9mm on the table, would you? No. Why?
0: Well... Horror yeah. story could happen.
1: <laughs> yeah. Kids don't want to play Cowboys and Indians with that. But if you're in a special forces briefing room, you wouldn't think twice about leaving a loaded weapon on the table Hmm. because you were all old and wise enough not to run around playing cowboys and Indians, right? Mm -hmm. So we're here in this reality frame in order to grow up until we reach a level of emotional, spiritual maturation whereby we can be trusted not to go to the bank vault or the the ladies locker room. (laughs) And you'll see that in Zen, in Buddhism, where the Zen masters finally reach Nirvana, and then they check out. Mm -hmm. You've just graduated college. Mm -hmm. I mean, they kind of fall over while meditating. uh, Other people expect the bus. Where do we go from here? College. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Where's college? I don't know. I'm I'm not attached to wherever that is. Mm I think I've been in this school uh, enough times to know that I'm not getting out anytime soon. <laughs> you know, uh, so you know, you talk about a soul's journey; it's evolution.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, this isn't just some airy fairy, esoteric, metaphysical babble. <laughs> let's bring it down into reality. What is the purpose of evolution? Well, let's look at four hundred million years of fossil records. The purpose of evolution is to evolve. What does that mean? It means to essentially replicates into iterations of higher complexity. Yeah. You take an amoeba, single cell, mm-hmm. human body, 50 plus trillion cells.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, if you had 50 trillion amoebas and one food source, you got a war. But instead, you have a human body, there's 50 trillion cells and one food source. What do you have? Massive cooperation. Mm. Can you imagine the liver and the spleen? Yeah, you know, sort of signing a unilateral agreement to try to get more yeah, oxygen yeah, against the yeah, the heart and the kidneys. Yeah. No, you'd last about nineteen milliseconds and drop down dead. Yeah. So evolution, by its very definition of observation, is evolving into higher complexity, which means that it's lowering into uh, evolving into lower levels of entropy or disorder. Yeah. Second law of thermodynamics. So. If you have cooperation as the fundamental prerequisite for evolution, where is that destination at its final source? Well, to me, it's love. Hmm. The purpose of life on Earth is to evolve into love, because that's where evolution is taking us. Your cells needed to learn how to love each other, not hate each other, in Hmm. order for you to exist. And if you, again, look at how the game's set up, why do we have masculine and feminine? Mm. We've got a situation where we need to learn how to cooperate, otherwise we go extinct. It's kind of built into the system. Yeah. Now in the early days of lower levels of consciousness, we had hormonal impulses that kind of helped us along until our level of consciousness that we are now in humanity is such where love can take over rather than lust. Mm. But if we still don't learn how to get along at that level, We kind of go extinct. So we've kind of built some rules into the game that point to the game. That makes sense? Yeah, totally, yeah. So the soul's journey is to learn how to love. Hmm. You know, if you were to split the world in half and and have half people coming from fear and half people coming from the other side of Einstein's question, and fast forward 20 years, one half, and Tom Campbell uses this as a metaphor, it's it's beautiful, that the half that came from fear would start forming cliques. That start saying, okay, the power centers would start to form. It'd be us against them. I'd be investing in how do I defend what I have, or go attack, yeah, you know, with you more people to, or other people that are less than, so I can get their food source. Mm. I create a competitive advantage. I don't share that with my, you know, other people. Kind of sounds like the world so we So take <laughs> yeah. yeah. You set the other side. People come from love and harmony and cooperation. Somebody's barn burns down. Everybody gathers around to try to rebuild it back up. Mm. Somebody develops a new form of fishing. It's shared so everybody can fish. All of a sudden, if you have um, cooperation, you have synergy. Which side of the world do you want to live on? It's not difficult. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) I'm going to watch this interview back and just see that it was... Uh, a long sequence of me having my mind blown time after time again. <laughs> um, but, Peter, I just want to say an enormous thank you. Um, I said it t- to you, and I mean this in the most heartfelt way, that since, um, you know, your, your prison story coming out, I, I, you're exactly the same as you were, if not a better version. Um, and you're just, uh, you know, you are genuinely an amazing person. And I, I just thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking the time to to come and speak to me. It's been
1: absolutely incredible. Well, thank thank you. It's it's inspiring to be here. It's inspiring to see what you've done and you've created as a platform to help other people. I mean, (laughs) we're all made of the same stuff. And again, hopefully, you know, coming out of that graduation event, (laughs) I've learned and evolved into a slightly better version of myself if I can. And I'm sure I've still got a lot of lessons to to learn, Mm. a bit more ego to surrender, a bit more fear to get rid of. And and it's part of the reason why we're all doing what we're doing, my friend. But Yeah. yeah,
0: thank you. It's a pleasure. Peter, thank you so much. Cheers. <laughs> You've been listening to Inspired Edinburgh. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe for more powerful conversations. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our show, and we'll see you at the next episode.